this week on Punch Mountain. Wesley Snipes returns as the Daywalker with all of a vampire's strengths and none of their weaknesses, which I guess means he's good at raves but knows better than to go to them. Catch a pair of sunglasses because we're watching Blade 2. Punch Mountain starts now. Welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies, not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. We don't make the mountain, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake. I'm joined as always by the one they call the day drinker, Mr. David Hada. David, is that true? I have all of your drinks, <laughs> all of your drinks and none of your weaknesses. When was the last time, not just like a cocktail, but you, when was the last time you, you had a, a couple drinks in, during the daytime, during the daylight hours? Knott's in Texas. It's been, it's been years since I've done that. I had a couple of drinks at night a while back and that I could not sleep after that. So I'm just, I'm not quite the drinker that I used to be. Yeah, me neither. I don't want to be though. That's the thing. I remember uh, I was my sister's wedding and the next day I felt terrible. And I was like, I don't get it. I was never drunk. All I did was drink all day, but I was like, oh, wait, there, hold on, there it is. <laughs> and just in that moment, I had this realization. Again, I wasn't, it's not uh, hammered or rock bottom. I just felt bad. And I just was like, you know what? I, I hate this. I hate feeling hungover. I kind of never want to feel hungover again. And ever since then, the only time I've ever, uh, since that moment, I've been drunk once, maybe twice. Once was my bachelor party. You were there, David. Yay. I, I barely remember that. That was a fun time. It was. And you know who sent me an email today? The very same paintball company that I, we kicked off the day at. It sent me a happy birthday email, David, which is pretty funny because it's it's sort of, it's my birthday month. But even so, there's something about getting older and having companies be the ones who are dependable about like wishing you a happy birthday. It's like, my friends have fallen to the wayside. My family doesn't care. But like, Papa John's is here to tell me happy birthday. Like on my birthday, the phone rings. And I'm like, hello. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, it's great to hear from you. No, I mean, just, you know, hanging out with the family, might eat a pizza later. Yeah, I'm kind of a low-key birthday guy. Oh, no, I would love to. I'd love to see you soon. Okay, great, bye. Uh, that was Texas Paintball, David. <laughs> Amazing. But David, speaking of my birthday, this movie that we're going to talk about is was my birthday pick. We're talking about Blade 2 on this episode, the sequel to Blade 1. That's right. I had the driver for my birthday. That was my birthday pick. It is now September. It is now the month of Mac Blake. So I said, hey, birthday boy, what do you want to do for your birthday? And you said, Blade 2, Blade 2, <laughs> the whole car ride home. You slept so good that night. <laughs> so, Mac, yeah. I, I'm excited to talk about this because I, I'm not sure how this episode is going to go. So let's just get right into it. Opening thoughts on Blade 2. This is your birthday pick. Why did you pick Blade 2? Well, Blade 2 is one of my favorite movies for a long time. And we'll get into why as we go about this episode. But honestly, when you asked me what movie I wanted to do, why did Blade 2 pop up? I don't know. I don't know what made that be my like knee-jerk reaction. I think part of the reason I like it, though, is because Wesley Snipes, who appears in this mountain only once so far, Pastor 57, I was really excited about that movie and then really hurt how much it kind of sucked a little bit. And so I was like, you know what? Let's get a little justice for Wesley. Also, you know, it's another Guillermo del Toro movie. You know, I, I think Blade 2 is the best of the Blade franchise. You know, it doesn't have some of the iconic moments from Blade 1. Like it doesn't have his kill line after he murders Steven Dorff. Like some motherfuckers try to ice skate uphill, which is great. And it doesn't have the, oh. the blood rave. It doesn't have the weird vampire blob. And the fact that it doesn't have Steven Dorff, for the longest time I would count that as a plus. But now that I've gotten weirdly nostalgic about stuff, the fact that he's such like a, a perfect like 90s hipster kind of slacker villain is like so perfect for Blade 1, even though it is ridiculous. The craziest thing, though, was watching 
uh, True Detective season three and then seeing Stephen Dorff in that. Oh, shit. This guy is like good now. What the fuck? Because for the longest time, I thought like I could not take him seriously, maybe because of his last name. But Blade 2 has got something that Blade 1 does not have, which is Guillermo del Toro at, at the helm. And I think, no offense to Stephen Norrington, who directed Blade 1, but I mean, there is an action momentum that you, in Blade 2 did not get in the first one. But David, have you seen this movie before? Mac, I have not seen this. This is my first time watching this movie. I saw Blade 1 a lot because when I was a freshman at the University of Texas mm-hmm. and I stayed in the dorms, There was like a dorm channel where they would just play new release movies in a loop. And so Blade 1, I saw a lot. I formed my opinion on it. And part of that opinion was, I'm not going to watch any more of these. So like Blade 2 came and went. And then Blade 3 came out, Blade Trinity. And I kind of heard rumblings about that. Maybe it's not so good. Maybe it's just too odd. Like the behind the scenes stuff was kind of weird. So I felt comfortable in my decision to not check it out. So I was very happy to to watch this, you know, just coming into it without any sort of preconceived notions, but watching it without tipping too much. I, I wasn't too high on this movie overall. I think for me, vampires are just a non-starter. I got halfway through this movie. I was like, I just think like the lore of it, just what we're supposed to bring to the table, like we're already supposed to have pre-installed knowledge of vampires or something like that. You know, we're supposed to think they're sexy and mysterious. They're supposed to be just inherently cool. There was something about this movie that just wasn't clicking for me. But with all that said, you have to appreciate the existence of Blade. You have to appreciate the existence of this series of movies. Because, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but Blade, as far as, like, the Marvel comic book series, maybe a tertiary character? Like, at least in the 70s and 80s, or, you know, 80s and 90s leading up to the release of the movie, to have a movie made about Blade is bananas. And then to have three made, my feelings about it aside, the quality of the second one is astonishing. Like there are aspects of this movie that are really fantastic. So like, I've got to give credit where credit is due for them to like commit to making a Blade movie, to making a series of Blade movies and to like care about the quality that went into them. I've got to give this movie its flowers. Like, and one final thought, uh, sort of the, the redemption for Wesley Snipes, you're absolutely right. You know, Passenger 57 did leave a weird taste in, in both of our mouths. This is what we needed. This is a showcase for Wesley Snipes. He is far and away the MVP of this movie. I, I'm excited to talk about this movie. You mentioned uh, Blade's sort of status in the Marvel Comics tertiary character at best, which I think is why Blade got made. I think the audience that saw the movie Blade in theaters, the first one, I'd say the vast majority of them had no idea it was based on like a Marvel comic. If you look at what had come out at that point, like nothing, you know, like Blade came out in 1998, X-Men was in 2000, Blade was in 02, and then Spider-Man, the Sam Raimi one starring Tobey Maguire, was later this same year in 2002. I think parts of this movie's approach, like watching it now, yeah, it does feel like a little like I've kind of seen it before. Like now that there's all these different comic book movies, et cetera. But in 2002, like we had not seen this before. We had not seen this kind of like world building. And that's part of the reason why I like Blade 2 as a sequel. It doesn't feel like just like, oh, another Blade adventure as some like James Bond sequels might. It it definitely felt like they were like, okay, if this is a story of Blade 1, therefore, and then like what would be that, you know, the, the world of Blade 2? Because you you do kind of see like the uh, expansion of like, all right, this if there's a weird ruling class of vampires, what are they like? If Blade exists in the world, how does that change things? Like, what is some of the infrastructure that vampires use to gather blood? Of course, it's like a ridiculous, <laughs> like the shadiest blood bank on the planet. And Wesley Snipes does love Blade. When he went on Letterman, he like wore his Blade costume, which is like, wow, pretty good. Oh my God. But Blade 2, this article I read, it described it as a grindhouse style action gauntlet. And I 
do feel like that's what it is. I feel like Guillermo del Toro and Wesley Snipes did a good job throughout this movie of making every action scene feel different, like of mixing up the kind of the fighting style or the, the bad guys. Is it as good as I remembered it? Will I still call this one of my favorite movies? We shall find out. Before we go any further, I think it would help to clear up some common questions. If you search Blade 2 on Google, the results include these frequently asked questions, so we'll do some quickly provided answers. David, is Blade 2 streaming anywhere? Yes, in your bloodstream. <laughs> Mac, why was Morbius cut from Blade 2? Too sexy. Which, David, to me, that's just some more BS. David, was Blade 2 any good? Good for ravers. Mac, who played the best? Bad vampire in Blade 2. Well, David, there was a lot of bad vampires. If you're asking who played like the bad vampire, like the naughty one, Blade, Wesley Snipes. Yay! Before we dive into the story of a secret war between establishment vampires and outcast vampires, let's dive into the secrets of friendship. It's a friendship check-in. Our friendship, David Hada, how are you? And before you answer that, I want you to know that I was trying real hard to work in instead of vampires, the phrase van pilots, because you famously, I know I didn't do it though. <laughs> you, you famously drove a van for many years. That's right. It was part of my personality. I, I You know what? If you want to try it, I'll, I'll allow it. If you want to fit that in. Well, I would say like, okay, over a secret war between vampires, let's dive into the secrets of a van pilot. And then what am I? And his friend? You're the right seater. Ugh, disgusting. Anyway, David, how are you doing? You're my whistler. How about that? I did want to relay something to you because, you know, we're recording this at the beginning of September. Well, this will come out toward the end of September. So we're wrapping up the baseball regular season. So I'm watching a lot more games. So I'm watching a lot of regional broadcasts or like the local broadcast team for a bunch of different teams. So I heard something during the A's Angels game a few days ago that I was so excited about that I wanted to do a voice memo on my phone because there was no way I was going to type it all out. So here's what it ends up saying. I'm going to read this to you as it was transcribed. Okay, so it's the A's Angels game. And Ruiz steals four bags. And so the announcer for the A says, four bags, that'll cost you 40 cents at the grocery store. That's all I wanted to say, Jesus Christ. So I got frustrated with the voice notes because I had never used them before. So it included my getting mad at it at the end of the note. And I found that uh, to be delightful. But I'll give you a bonus one just because this was fun. I was watching the Pirates game the other day. And one of the uh, Pirates hits a home run. And the announcer goes, that's what you do with cheese, Chester. So I love that quite a bit. Yeah, because you got some cheese right down the middle, and that's what you do with it. You knock it into the seats. Baseball, Mac. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm not up to date on my baseball terminology. What would what would cheese be? A hittable ball? Yeah, it, it used to be, I guess, a meatball. But, you know, you just throw them some cheese. You throw them like a, like a fastball or something, but you don't quite locate it where you want it, so it's just right down the middle. It's, it's on the plate for you, like a big plate of cheese. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm, it, I'm making this up for them. It made sense there at the end, but not until that last part. <laughs> Fair enough. How are you, Mac Blake? I'm doing good. I have an affinity for, um, you know, when things pop up about our terrible modern life, an affinity for sentences that my grandmother, God rest her soul, wouldn't have no entry point, right? TikTok influencer gets milkshake ducked, you know, like that kind of thing where I'd be like, oh, grandma, did you see this? And, you know, she'd be like, well, well, I don't, what does that mean? Is that there's a gas leak in the newspaper factory? And this past weekend, something came up where I was, you know, just the sentence of what happened. I feel like if I told that to my dad, he would be like, I don't what what the fuck does that mean? David, if you were to ask me, what did I do this past Sunday? Mac, what did you do this past Sunday? I would tell you, well, I had a hard time getting my kid to stop fighting the drink bringing robot at the conveyor belt sushi place. What on earth? Please tell me more. Well, there's, you know, it's a sushi place where the sushi's all in like a little like rotating 
conveyor belt that goes all through the restaurant. And if you see a, you know, a plate of sushi you want or a little slice of cheesecake, you grab it. And they have one of those like little um, autonomous robots that will bring drinks to your table. You ever seen these? No, I have not. This is, uh, I'm your grandma. I've seen them in a couple of places here in, in Austin. And uh, for some reason, my four-year-old, my, my wife put it later. She's like, he really just could not help himself because we'd be like, his name is Colby. We'd be like, Colby, stop. Leave that robot alone. Leave it alone. Because he would get down off the seat and like shove the robot or hit it. <laughs> and then the robot would stop because he's like, oh, is there a problem with your drink? It would be like, Colby, stay in your seat. And he'd be like, all right. And they like, he would just see him start getting up. It's like, oh, he really just, he had no say in the matter. A robot came by with drinks and a little like robot smiling face and he had to shove it. It looks like a kind of a trash can. It was like a trash can on wheels. It wasn't like, it didn't look uh, like, you know, anthropomorphic or anything. Yeah. I'm excited for his future career as a robot fighter. I mean, he is, he is what we needed out of John Connor. You needed to see that from the very beginning where it's like, this guy's destined to kick some robot ass. Like, that's kind of cool, Mac. Oh, we need, that's our new uh, podcast, Robot Fighting Mountain. Sarah Connor, Magnus, who else is going to be on there? <laughs> who, who else famously fought robots? Uh, Neo? Uh, Will Smith? Oh, yeah. He, did, he didn't like some of those robots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was, he, was, he was against them, some of them. Oh, my God. He was like, I eat robot. Yeah, I, I, I robot. But there was one robot he became friends with. Oh, who was that? I don't remember his name, David. Uh, Dr. Robo, whatever. Who cares? Sounds good. X942. I don't remember their names. Oh, my God. Diane Word? <laughs> yeah, no, please. Oh, yeah. The uh, who fought Chappie in those uh, Hugh Jackman? Hugh Jackman's buddies? Man, that's <laughs> unmemorable. I feel like Chappie was a pretty killable robot and they couldn't kill Chappie. Wait, did they kill Chappie? No, they didn't. That other guy turned. Oh, oh Jesus fucking Chappie. <laughs> uh, enough of these robots, David. Give me some Oakley sunglasses. Let me drink some goddamn blood. Is it, is it time to do this thing? Mac, grab your steaks and your garlic. We're going in. Because uh, I'm making a, a delicious Bobby Flay style steak. Uh, I wish. Are you kidding Too me? Too late. I'm already grilling. Like the, like the Flay man himself, Bobby F. I don't know why <laughs> Bobby Flay got brought into this. I certainly know whatever disciple of his. Okay. This is the second time we brought up Bobby Flay on this show. <laughs> Did we? Holy shit. Flay Mountain. All right, David, for people who have not seen Blade 2 or people who might not remember it, just a level set. Can you give the back of the box description? You bet I can. When the world is threatened by a new and deadlier breed of super vampire, the legendary Blade, Wesley Snipes, and his mentor Whistler, Chris Christopherson, must join forces with the Blood Pack, an elite team of vampire warriors made up of his sworn enemies. In order to stop the carnage, these ravenous fiends must be destroyed at all costs in this high voltage these adventure. These ravenous fiends. <laughs> A little judgmental. Not in my backyard. Yeah. <laughs> Exploding with spectacular effects and martial arts action, the electrifying Snipes reprises his role from the original cult classic, Blade. 2002, 117 minutes, directed by Guillermo del Toro, rated R. A deadlier breed of super vampire. Oh, David, that's the last thing we need, you know what I mean? I mean, vampires are plenty. We don't need a deadlier breed. This movie's putting a vampire hat on a vampire hat. The legendary Blade and his mentor. <laughs> like, no, no legendary vampire hunter of a previous generation, Whistler. And I was like, just some dude who schooled him. Poor Whistler. It's also assuming that we know who the blood pack is. Like, oh yeah, you, we finally get the blood pack in this in this episode. It's like an elite team of vampire warriors made up of his sworn enemies, vampires. It's like, you don't, you know, you don't need it. Uh, whatever. Whatever. More like wherever, David. How does this movie start? Mac, this movie starts in the blood-soaked streets of Prague. Or they might be wet from rain. Who can tell? 
But I do know that we're in an underground blood bank when we meet Jared Nomak, played by Luke Goss, a new type of vampire called a Reaper. Nomak is at the blood bank, not to make a deposit, but a withdrawal. Also in Prague, the vampire hunter, the one fearful vamps called the Daywalker, the man called Blade, played by Wesley Snipes. But Blade's also a vampire, right? But with like all their strengths and other weaknesses, is that right? Mac, please don't do this the whole episode. Blade is closing in on the vampires who have been holding Blade's friend and mentor Whistler hostage for the past two years. Whistler played by Chris Christopherson. Blade murders a bunch of vampires and rescues the now vampiric Whistler from Guillermo del Toro's trademark Chamber of Goo. Ah, if you love GDT, you love his COG, Chambers of Goo. He loves encasing people. So, Mac, how are we feeling about this introduction so far? I like it, and I like the sort of situation it sets up, and more about that later. David, what about you? How did you like this beginning? I liked it okay. The more I think about it, the more I like it. I've come to this conclusion, you know, because it definitely makes some choices. Like, I had a lot of questions about like the production design. This blood bank, it's in a bunker in Prague. What's up with this bunker setup? Why is there a mop-up room with a pool of blood that we can see? Why does the blood bank guy have a Freddy Krueger blood glove that takes, it's just needles. But I, I kind of wish that when Guillermo del Toro made this movie, he had a little more fuck you money because he hasn't quite hit the height of his fame yet or the height of his clout. So I think there was maybe some pushback or maybe he wasn't allowed to like see his complete vision through. So what you're kind of left with is something that's like very cool, but could have been a lot cooler, especially when you see what Guillermo del Toro is capable of in later movies. Like, I don't know. It, it was it was interesting to think back of this as a 2002 movie instead of like you said, you know, where we've seen other movies since then. So it's kind of hard to place it in its timeline or in the in the timeline of history. But it's certainly interesting. I'll, I'll give it that. I don't know. It's a unique look. Yeah. Vampire culture has definitely embraced creepy stuff like a little too hard. Like, you know, it's like, hey, we need to do a, a blood extracting machine. It's like, make it the glove. To your point, though, I, I think I read somewhere that like Guillermo del Toro wanted to make Hellboy. And I don't know if it was the studio or his managers or whatever, but they're like, dude, make Blade 2. And if you do that, you will get the funds you need to make Hellboy. But like you need to prove that you because I think he made Mimic, which, uh, you know, it had like Mio Sorvino and somebody else in it at the time. I think there was a, a name actor. Oh, wait, was it was it the guy who played Rock? Charles Dutton. Yes, that's right. I was thinking, is Craig Bierko in that? <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah, I think you might have hit upon something. This isn't a full throttle GDT movie, but it's him taking an existing franchise and definitely putting his touches on it. But, yeah, still working within the kind of confined setup or uh, the parameters of Blade 1. But yeah, you get a, you get a creepy scene and uh, all of a sudden you think this Nomad guy who's, you know, just dressed in uh, layers upon layers of, of jackets, you think vampires are going to drain him, but then he ends up killing all these vampires. And it's, it's a creepy scene. Like when Nomad bites another vampire in the neck, there's like a blood explosion on the wall that I said, cool, out loud. But then after that, Dave, we cut to some opening titles and some previously on Blade audio. Let's hear a little bit of that. My name is Blade. I was born half human, half vampire. They call me the Daywalker. I have all their strengths, none of their weaknesses, except for the thirst. And here's some information, David. He, he talks about Whistler being like a, a vampire now. Two years ago, he was attacked. They took him and turned him into the thing I hate most. I should have finished him off. Now I'm hunting him. Which, David, I saw Blade 1. I could have sworn Whistler died. 
So this, the fact that Whistler's alive, this is uh, news to me. I was surprised that they sort of retrofitted it to bring Chris Christopherson back, or it seems that way. Because, yeah, I remember that, too, where he killed himself at the end of Blade 1. Like, that was the sacrifice, I thought. And so to see him back, hey, I'm not going to poo-poo Chris Christopherson. He does an exceptional job in this movie, by the way. Yeah, and later, a couple scenes later, he's like, after I shot myself, I still turned, and then they soaked me into a blood. It's like, oh, okay. Then I don't think we needed that info in, like, the intro voiceover narration it, it kind of just reminds me of uh the movie we shall not mention david episode nine uh rise of skywalker like in the opening crawl it's like the emperor's back don't ask why she just fucking is shut up it's just confusing off the uh, right off the bat but as soon as these opening title credits are over it's time for our first action set piece we'll call blades back because he's back david blades back and he's bladier than ever yeah, he makes a fantastic introduction. You know, we're in some club or something. I, I can't remember. It's been days since I watched this movie. But he's basically, you know, he's the ghost who walks. Like, you've got vampire guards are like, I heard the Dadewalker is here. Where is he? And then he appears. And then he just starts wrecking shop on these vampires, turning them into ash and soot. You know, I'm going to say this a lot throughout this episode where this is redemption for Wesley Snipes. This is what we wanted out of Passenger 57 to point at a movie and say, this is what Wesley Snipes is capable of. Right out of the gate, this is good Wesley Snipes combat. He's putting in the work, selling these fights. I think this is a really great introduction to Blade, even though it's a sequel, even though we've seen this character before but as far as this movie goes it's a good introduction to wesley snipes character yeah i agree with that it's a hot intro for blade as he comes in guns a blazing and speaking of a blazing david in the first blade movie they've established that once you kill a vampire with like an anti-vampire weapon right like i don't know sunlight or garlic or silver or whatever the vampires they don't like and like slowly die they disintegrate into kind of like glowing ember clouds because that's part of blade one seeing it here in blade two i've like already accepted that that's how vampires die in this world so i was like okay yeah it's that effect or whatever but david how do you feel about it how do you feel about this vampire death special effect the ember explosion ember disintegration whatever i'm willing to let it go just because it's 2002 i'm gonna do that a lot in this movie where i have to sort of reconfigure scenes in my head to picture them with updated special effects. If this looked like a convincing special effect, I would be so into this, but it just looks like a very 2002 attempt at, at turning vampires into ash. I'll bet in a comic book it was awesome. I bet like on a drawn page, it was really fantastic. It's just something about it in this motion picture that is not connecting with me. Yeah, it definitely feels dated. In fact, a lot of these special effects do, and, and I don't mean dated as in like bad necessarily, but dated as like, oh, okay, we're definitely in a post-Matrix world where every action movie has to have some Matrix effects in it. And so there's a lot of like, you know, Wesley Snipes or Blade like diving out of a window. And of course, that camera's got a fucking bullet time. him. it's got to go like all the way around him. And I, I don't know if this was cool in 2002, but it's just like, stop. You have a, a guy who can do some awesome practical fighting. Like he's got the martial arts skills. If you want Chris Evans to do these moves, you have to switch him out with a stunt double. But like Wesley Snipes, he's the goods, right? So you don't, you kind of don't need some CGI. But during this uh, massacre where Blade is like wasting all these vampires or maybe a couple familiars, I don't know. At some moment, he like does a backflip or something onto a motorcycle and he pulls the motorcycle and he stops short of his car. And then he looks at, I think, at himself in the mirror of the car and he gives a little kiss to himself in the mirror. He doesn't actually like kiss the mirror. He basically blows a kiss without the hand motion. David, was this cool? No. Well, because it was confusing because when I watched that, I didn't pick up on the mirror part of it. I thought he was making a kiss to the car. 
I thought he was like, you know, he, like he didn't wreck it or he didn't bump into it. So he was like, that's how slick I am, baby. But then I started thinking, okay, is the car special to him? So I guess that brings me to a question, Mac, because I thought this car was canon. I thought this was some special like wink and nod to people who read the comic book where it's like, oh, it's the Blade Mobile or it's, his, you know, it's his souped up car. Two part question. Am I wrong on this? And B, are there moments in this movie that are for comic fans only? Are there things that I'm missing that are just winks and nods to people who get it? No, you're not missing anything. I mean, that's the thing about Blade is that he's more or less a blank slate in terms of the comics. You know, like Deacon Frost, they took that name, but that character was nothing like Stephen Dorff. You know, in fact, this car, it was kind of one of the few lingering things from Blade One. But in the comics, he doesn't like drive a Dodge Charger famously or something like that. Or even the the Ember explosions, that's not from the comic books either. Like that's just sort of a visual choice that, you know, they made in, in Blade One. And in the comics, Blade would frequently, you know, he'd, he'd work as part of a team. Like I not did not read any of the 1970s stuff, but I know in the 90s when they brought him back, he was part of the Night Stalkers along with Hannibal King and uh, somebody else. I didn't actually read that book. It was part of basically like when Ghost Rider got so big, they're like, let's give Ghost Rider like some spinoff books, including Morbius, which is really funny. They're all part of the Midnight Suns universe, but what ever. But yeah, there are no necessarily like comic book nods in these movies. I mean, they tried to at the end of Blade One. They actually shot a scene where like, you know, the camera pans over and there's Morbius like on the roof of a building. And you're like, what? And then Marvel was like, no, we want Morbius to be his own movie someday. Okay. <laughs> like as if Wesley Snipes had killed Morbius in 2002, that Sony wouldn't have been able to take in the riches that they got from the Jared Leto movie. I don't know. But also Whistler, David, his first appearance was not in the comic books. It was actually in an episode of the Spider-Man cartoon that I think David Goyer, the screenwriter for this movie, wrote. He was like, I'm going to go ahead and write in my character that I wrote for the Blade movie. So yeah, he's not a comic book character either, I believe. But you know what? If he was blowing a kiss to the car, again, the fact that he like loves that car, okay. <laughs> like it's still, still kind of weird. I don't know. Whatever. He's allowed to blow a kiss to his car, but I wasn't like, cool. But let's get into Chris Christopherson. He's going to play Whistler. The whole opening sequence is going to be Blade coming to Prague to rescue Whistler from captivity. You know, he busts into this vampire hideout where they're snorting blood coke. I'm not quite sure if that's a thing ever in comics or lore. He pulls Whistler out of this goo. What do you think of Chris Christopherson in this movie? Like, are, are you okay with the Whistler character? Are you okay with Chris Christopherson's performance? Let's talk. I'm okay. I love all of it. My only knock against Whistler is that he's like a grim, stoic character, and so is Blade, which is why I kind of like Scud, who we're about to meet a little bit later. But yes, Blade is able to cure Whistler like overnight, pretty much, of his vampiric stuff, I guess, because he's not like a born vampire like Blade was. He was one who was turned. And I guess Blade can now cure all vampires, which there's, by the way, no effort from Blade to even pursue that route of like, let's pursue a cure for vampires. He's like, no, kill them all. But the fact that Chris Christopherson is in these like crazy vampire comic book movies is so funny to me because, you know, he's like this kind of folk singer guy. And what's funny, too, is uh, so he was working at a janitor, I think, at a recording studio. And the like Johnny Cash was working at and he was like kind of became Johnny Cash's friend. And Johnny Cash was the one who kind of I don't know if he like got him a record deal or, or what, but he definitely like championed Chris Christopherson. And I just really like the idea of like Johnny Cash, like following up with his friend, like, hey, Chris, it's me, Johnny Cash. I saw the new Blade movie. I heard you were going to be in it, but only as a as a flashback. 
very excited they brought back Whistler. You and Blade make a good team. You know, just if, if a phone call happened where Johnny Cash talked about Blade, then yay, this movie is worth every penny and every second they spend making it. You know, uh, Tom Sharpling on the best show, he'll he'll ask the question, do you think Elvis lived long enough to see Star Wars? <laughs> and I think I think for us, it's going to be, do you think Johnny Cash called Chris Christopherson about Blade? I, I would love to know. That. I mean, I think he died maybe the same year of Blade 2 or he died like a year afterward. But he definitely saw Blade 1. Hey, Chris, it's Johnny. <laughs> Love Blade. Secret Underworld of Vampires. Great stuff. Can you get me some shades from the set? Could you have Wesley call up Roseanne on her birthday? If she could get a birthday phone call from Blade, it would make her day. Okay, I don't do a very good Johnny Cash impression, but you know what? I accept it. I accept it. I will say this about Chris Christopherson. You know, exceptional performance. I, I really appreciated him. You know, like you alluded to, he's got a fascinating life. He's got a fascinating career. His debut record is one of my favorite records of all time. But like in this movie, he he blends well into the character, except the moment that I realized, oh, this is an actor. This is Chris Christopherson. Is when they take him out of the chamber, out of the, the chamber of goo, and he's wearing pants. Like, I feel like a capital A actor would have been like, oh, no, I'm in stasis. I'm probably in, like, some undies or something. Maybe I'm nude. But, like, the fact that Chris Christopherson was probably like, there's no way I'm getting in there without some pants on. God damn it. Like, <laughs> that did take me out of the movie, I must admit. Wesley, was this your idea? Ain't no, I'm not showing my pecker for the paycheck they're giving me for Blade 2. I, I think we've got our Patreon content. I think <laughs> it's just Chris Christopherson and Johnny Cash talking about Blade. Pretty much. Hey, Chris, <laughs> I got some ideas for Blade 3. Oh, God. God damn it. I actually do have a Christmas Christopher Robinson hanging on. <laughs> I can tell. I can tell. There's a line he says later in the movie where I'm like, oh, that's my reset for whenever I do Christmas. <laughs> it's like, you got to talk out of the side of your mouth. Speaking of Blade and Whistler, they return to their Prague hideout where we meet Blade's new guy in the chair, a technologically gifted dirtbag named Scud, played by Norman Reedus. What? <laughs> that's right, Max. Scud has the important jobs of looking busy and smoking weed. Meanwhile, Whistler develops an instant disdain for the pissant scud, but no time for that now. Sexy parkour ninjas are breaking into the compound. Vampires Nisa and Assad, played by Leonor Varela and Danny John Jules, have come to offer Blade a truce on behalf of Vampire Nation and hope to enlist his help in fighting the Reapers, is what we'll call them now. So, so Mac, we meet uh, we meet Scud. Um, Blade and Whistler return to their compound. I guess it, they have a mobile command unit in Prague. Scud's there to greet him. Scud's uh, getting high, so it's 420 everywhere. And so he offers Blade, he's like, hey, you want to smoke? And Blade's like, later. So is this canon? Is, does, does Blade smoke, bud? Oh, you better believe Blade smokes, bud. Because the thing is, we never saw Blade eat in this movie. We never saw him sleep. We never saw him shit. And he definitely does those things. So the fact that he was like, later, he's like, yeah, hell yeah, later, I'm going to fucking smoke a giant vampire bong. But Mac, Norman Reedus, like, that that was astonishing to me to see him in this role. I Because I only knew him, you know, at, by the time 2002 rolls around, it's Boondock Saints. And I don't know what else. So like, Hey, man, good for him. But to see him in 2023 in this movie, like you could have just gotten Edward Furlong. Like I, it, it feels like they wasted a Norman Reedus on this movie. See, this is the first time I'd ever seen Norman Reedus in, in anything. And so the fact like 
And so later when he was on Walking Dead, I was like, oh, hey, this guy. And then now he's become kind of like, you know, this uh, like legit tough guy, biker dude. You like the ride with Norman Reedus, whatever the show is. And the fact that in this movie, he, yeah, he's kind of just like a dummy, like just a high smart dummy yeah. is is just kind of funny because, I mean, he's, he's kind of nerdy in this thing. He is kind of nerdy in this thing. It it do, it goes against what I know about Norman Reedus. Uh, but then again, like. I'm saying this now, having just watched my girlfriend beat uh, Death Stranding, which is a video game that he stars in and special appearance by Guillermo del Toro. So, yeah, it makes sense that he's just this nerd who loves cool shit. Like, yeah, I love video games and vampire movies and being a vigilante and pretending I'm Irish. Yeah, Norman Reedus has has got the life, man. Yeah, and dirty. Definitely just feels like a dude who has not <laughs> taken a shower, which continues. I think that's just his, like, that's his vibe or whatever. But also, he's wearing a BPRD uh, shirt, which is the, uh, I believe it's the Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defense, the uh, agency that employs Hellboy. So I remember when I first saw that shirt, when I first saw Blade 2, I was pointing at the screen like I was Leonardo DiCaprio meme. But David, uh, we see that besides getting high and, and working on welding various pieces of weaponry or cars, what else is Scud, that's Norman Reedus' character, what else is Scud doing? Scud is enjoying some television. He is watching Powerpuff Girls. He will watch Powerpuff Girls throughout this movie. He will watch Powerpuff Girls exclusively. There's no other shows that he watches, no other public domain property that Guillermo del Toro could get a hold of. I'm going to ask you, Mac, maybe this is a rhetorical question, maybe not. Is there a significance to the Powerpuff Girls in this movie? I don't get it. I don't know why. But yeah, it's throughout <laughs> this movie. Maybe, I mean, look, Powerpuff Girls was definitely in Sure. Maybe GDT was just giving a nod to his old friend Craig McCracken or whatever. I thought for sure he would watch other Cartoon Network cartoons. I don't know. It it, it baffled me. It seemed like he would go for more of a Dexter's Lab, right? Yeah, because he's he's kind of he's kind of like a he kind of like works in a Dexter's Lab. But Max, so Scud is here holding down the fort when Blade and Whistler return. Whistler, you know, understandably has been gone for two years, so he's a little out of sorts about like, who's this guy? You know, why is he taking over? Scud gives him some lips. So Whistler comes back and says, you know, hell, I built this operation. Like my question is, what is this operation exactly? Does like, did I miss something in blade one? Do they explain what the mission of the blade and Whistler combo is, or is this some sort of fly by night kill vampires mission? I mean, yes, yes. And yes. When you think about like, he built this operation, honestly, that just means he made blade. Because the story was hmm. like he found a blade when he was a kid. I think his name is Eric Brooks. Is, is that the they never say it in Blade 2? I don't think he's like, you know, he's about to kill him when he was like, wait a second, this is a daywalker. And so he trains Blade, uh, you know, into like a, a killing machine, a vampire killing machine. He, he also is uh, he makes some some weaponry, like some anti-vampire weaponry, like this thing fire stakes is one fire silver, whatever. And so, like, I think that's the operation. I think it's just like, hey, I trained Blade and I made some crazy vampire killing weapons. That's that's the whole thing. So, yeah. But also, what is their mission? Yeah, it's just to kill vampires. I, like, there's no, like, uh, hierarchy board on the wall, like a bunch of FBI agents, like, building a case against the mafia. There's no, like, we take down these guys and then we go after the vampire, like, mafia capo or whatever. Like, there's nothing mm. along those lines. They're just pretty much just, like, finding, like, areas where there's a lot of vampires and just killing a bunch of them. See, I find that intriguing because, so, between Blade 1 and Blade 2, Whistler is gone for two years and Blade essentially has to go hunting for him, tracking him down. Where's that movie? Where's that like animated series or something just to tell that story of the two years in between when Blade is just going ham on vampires for no, for the only purpose of rescuing his friend. Like it's kind of taking him away from the mission at large, 
But then he's also doubling down on the mission by just killing as many vampires as he can. Yeah, it is interesting. It's kind of a wasted two years. If Blade does have uh, higher aspirations and just like, you know, <laughs> ruining parties, ruining some pretty sick parties. <laughs> if he does have aspirations, actually like taking out this vampire nation at its core, uh, then then yeah, he kind of just put that on, on hold for two years while he, he tracked down Whistler. Who, by the way, when Whistler comes back, he's not like, I missed you, you piece of shit. There's like no love between them. They're just like, no, nah, we're too tough for it. Yeah, I mean, I guess we're also supposed to kind of question Whistler's like allegiances. Like uh, Scud kind of is like, I'd kill this dude because, you know, once you're a vampire, always a vampire. Like, I don't think you can ever shake the thirst. There's a lot about this that I kind of wish, you know, Again, going back to Guillermo del Toro not being at the height of his powers, I kind of wish he was at the height of his writing powers. Uh, Not to say he's a particularly gifted writer. I think he could have developed that a little bit better because we do get that tenderness later with Whistler. We do get that sort of father-son bond. But when when we're introduced to Whistler at the beginning of this movie, he's out of sorts. Like... He doesn't realize he's been gone for two years. So like he's trying to piece it all together. And I kind of wish we could have felt that disorientation a little more. I think that would have set up the distrust of Scud a little bit better. But I don't know. I'm I'm filling in blanks that don't necessarily need to be filled. I don't know. I I would have... If they made that into an animated series, I would have watched it for sure. Pew, pew. Uh, we interrupt this scene of Scud, Whistler, and Blade all arguing because there's a because there's some perimeter alarms. Looks like some yes, some vampire ninjas are infiltrating our heroes' headquarters. It's an action set piece we'll call Break In at the Blade Cave. Uh, David, I thought this thing had a, a real creepy start because you see these you know vampire ninjas and they are all decked out like head to toe covered in black in case Blade tries to use some sunlight against him or UV light and they are silently you know swinging from the top of the building in the the rafters or whatever and just the fact that their entrance was like completely quiet I thought that was uh, pretty creepy and pretty effective and then once they land it's a fucking fight same here I really enjoyed that you know when we're introduced to the ninjas they're up in the rafters their movements are very lithe and very you know not seductiveness but there's a smoothness to them like I almost thought they were going to be shapeshifters like they were going to seamlessly transition into bats or snakes or something cool like that but no they're really slick in their movements and then it's it's on with wesley snipes this is going to be more solid wesley snipes fighting like this is there's so many showcases of wesley snipes of, of his abilities in this movie this is going to be one of them like i think his ability to hold his own with the stunt actor ninjas and still look cool doing it in his magician pants like I, I'm, I'm really high on wesley snipes in this movie and the sword fight, I have to say, for the most part, you know, you don't get the sense that um, this is a, a choreographed fight where they're just like, okay, we're going to touch the tips of our swords here and touch them again. It, it definitely feels like kind of they're fighting. You know, not every shot feels that way, but for the most part, yes. And and yeah, this is a real showcase to his sword fighting abilities. But in moments, they decide to go in like CGI where a character will like jump to a superhuman height and then they'll kind of switch back into non-CGI. I don't think you need it, especially when Wesley Snipes and these other stunt performers like kicking so much ass just to go into like a, a clearly like, oh, that's not even that doesn't look realistic. If you want to do some wire fighting at that moment, sure. But just I don't know. It, it Whenever they switched to CGI in this fight scene, it took me right out of it. It's along the lines. I was, I was re-listening to the Incredibles episode we did a few weeks ago and talking about, you know, what you can do with animation, where the benefit of animation is to go where the camera can't go normally. And so I think, you know, around this time, especially post-Matrix, you know, studios and and filmmakers were trying to figure out, well, shoot, what we're doing with CGI is this new and exciting tool. Where can we go that we haven't been able to go before? And I think this is one of those examples where it's like, come back in 10 years, try this again with updated technology. We'll see how it looks. But yeah, right now it's like, you don't need to do it. We've got 
We've got the standard ways of doing it that would have been just fine. But David, these vampires, Nisa and Asad, both of them kind of have like an air of sophistication about them. They aren't like uh, Donald Logue in the first Blade movie who's a piece of shit. They did not come here to fight. They came here because they need Blade's help. Uh, they're like, yeah, the Vampire Nation, we need uh, some help taking out these new vampires called Reapers. They're bad news. Blade, do you want to come to Vampire Headquarters and meet with uh, our bosses? And so Blade does not necessarily accept at this point, but he is intrigued. And so Blade, Scud, and Nisa arrive at the office building headquarters of the Vampire Nation. There, Blade and company meet with the ancient vampire overlord Eli Damaskinos, played by Damas Kreshman and accompanied by his attorney Conan, played by a Carol Roden. Damaskinos provides some insight into the Reapers, genetic mutations who turn their prey into carriers, capable of turning thousands into Reapers within a matter of months. One catch, though, Blade has to team up with the Blood Pack, a group of vampires who have been training for years, two to be exact, to hunt and kill Blade, but I'm sure they'll be super cool with him now. Yeah, some fun stuff in this chunk, and one of those fun things I gotta say is Scud. Like, I think Scud works, he works in this movie. I think he's a better hype man than Whistler. Because, you know, Blade is like, I'm tough. And Whistler's like, I'm also, I'm grizzled and tough. You know, but Scud is, he's just like a, is he hilarious? No, he sure isn't. But he's kind of fun. It's it's a nice contrast to the more serious characters of of Blade and Whistler. Yeah, it's, there's almost like a, I don't know, like a Bill Paxton quality, just a sort of manic enthusiasm about him. Like I, I was really into it. You know, I, I guess uh, the the scene I'm referring to in, uh, specifically is when the three of them are on their way to uh, Eli Damaskinos's office I, I, or fortress, whatever you want to call it. They're riding in this helicopter and Nisa seems disappointed at Blade. She was like, you know, I've heard stories of, of Blade as the boogeyman. And, and he's just in this helicopter with me. And so Scott's like, come on, show her, show her. Show her, B. Be a begging you, B. <laughs> and so uh, Blade's like, daddy like. And he opens <laughs> up his coat. And he's got uh, he's got enough explosives to level the whole office building, and just and the enthusiasm in Scudder is like, yeah, you thought he was disappointing. He's super not disappointing. Like I, I was very into it. Yeah, every great collaboration needs a fan. That's why we appreciate the Punch Mountain fans. Uh, and please don't betray us like Scud betrays Blade later in the movie. Spoiler alert. What? Uh, but yeah, they meet <laughs> the vampire overlord CEO or whatever current ruler Eli Demaskinos who. I, this guy seems familiar, and I was like, oh shit, it's Thomas Kreitschman, who you've definitely seen in movies that feature Germans, because look, <laughs> if you're a German actor and you're talented, at some point you're gonna play a Nazi in an American movie. It's just gonna fucking happen, okay? Even if you are a pacifist who's dedicated your life, if you volunteer for the International Rescue Organization and you've dedicated your life to helping others, if you're a German actor you're gonna play a Nazi, just get used to it. Mac, I gotta tell you, I pulled up his IMDb, and the first thing that comes up is Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, so so I guess he's a Nazi in that. Uh, actually, David, yeah, no, of course he is. Of course he's a Nazi in that. <laughs> so what is he in Gran Turismo? Hmm. He also is uh, Baron Von Strucker for like, I don't know, two scenes in the Marvel Comics uh, universe, who is, uh, you know, pretty much a Nazi. Fair enough. And his attorney played by, is it Carol Roden or Carl Roden? I would say Carol. I would say Carol. Okay. And uh, GDT heads recognize him from the Hellboy movie where he played Rasputin or Rara Rasputin. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, But David uh, Damaskinos kind of looks like that Nosferatu style vampire, like hairless and gross. And then in comes uh, Conan or Kunin. I don't know. And he introduces himself and uh, they have this exchange. Carol Kunin. You're human. Barely. I'm a lawyer. And David, look, okay, 
you know, I'm not made out of steel. All right. Is it a dumb lawyer joke? Yes, but it's still a funny lawyer joke. I, I have to admit I laughed. It's just, it's a cheap whatever. I don't give a shit, but it works. It fucking works. It's not like somebody made the joke to him. He offered up the joke. It's almost like he went to law school just to make self-deprecating jokes. Like, have some respect in your profession. I mean, have some respect. He represents vampires. <laughs> You're right, though. Is this the one millionth time Damaskinos has heard that joke? In fact, that's my punch up right now. Just have Damaskinos roll his eyes and be like, if I hear that joke one more time, fucking <laughs> stake me to the hard blade. <laughs> it's the one thing I don't like about being immortal is hearing that goddamn joke over and over again. I pray to be turned into dust. But Damaskinos breaks down like what's up with the Reapers. And he's like talks about how vampirism is kind of like a virus, right? And viruses have... They mutate into different strains, and one of those strains is now the Reapers. And that's what Damaskinos is claiming. This is kind of just like a natural weird mutation of vampirism. But David, back it up. I don't know if it was like 28 days later that first kind of treated zombieism or zombies as a virus. Is this the first instance of vampirism being treated instead of supernatural as a virus? In my estimation, yes, because my very limited knowledge of vampire stories and vampire lore is that turning somebody into a vampire is a very intimate act. You know, it's it's one-on-one. -on -one, it's a lot of embracing. It's a lot of necking and stuff like that. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think this movie presents it as it's a sickness in people and it spreads. So there's, there is something very interesting about that. And I think Guillermo del Toro is the perfect person to handle that. Well, I think it was first introduced in, in Blade 1, but they, they definitely expand on it in the in this movie in terms of like okay if the reaper strain is a, is a different virus how does that affect the people it infects and the answer is it changes them a lot uh, a surprising amount as we'll find out later in another disgusting autopsy scene yeah this movie is interesting as, as far as how it introduces the virus i guess you know uh, when they're talking about Jared Nomak, and forgive me, I will call him Jared a lot throughout this episode because I just love that, like, the one they called Nomak, Jared Nomak. They refer to him and they refer to Reapers as being akin to crack addicts. You know, he needs to feed daily. Like, it's this insatiable desire. It's not like a vampire. Not It's not like these prim and proper vampires who can manage their diet and nutrition. No, they've got to have it at all times. Nomak's been up for 72 hours. He's probably created a dozen Reapers by now. But like the crack addict, that that was a very like, that was a very early 2000s thing to say, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, 100%. These vampires are like, yeah, we're going to, we treat humanity like cattle. But at the same time, we are not being overt about it. Like vampires prefer to stay in the shadows. The way that, you know, these Reapers are feeding on vampires is uh, one thing we don't like. But number two, you know, they're not, subtle about it like they will expose us to the larger world uh but yeah so they're like look blade we need you to go after uh the reapers we'll call it truce while you do it and also you know once the reapers are getting done with vampires they're a threat to humanity so you have an interest in a two blade but you're not going to go alone we want you to team up with this uh special team of blade hunters this vampire black ops team which by the way david that sentence vampire black ops team if that was the tagline for this movie, fucking sold. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, we're going to give him a name that Rob Liefeld really like, the Blood Pack. And then we're going to meet these dudes. And guess what, David? Like every other vampire, they love leather and fetish gear. Yeah, that's my understanding of vampire lore. It's just, uh, yeah, when they're not hunting, they're fucking. They're a real head scratcher to me. So there's like eight of them. Let's count them off. So there's Light Hammer. He's got the face tattoo. There's Verlaine. She's got the red hair. 
So Lighthammer is a big dude who wields a hammer and Verlaine is a small lady who crawls all on top of Lighthammer because they're clearly just have, they can't stop touching each other. They're like a weird PDA couple. Gross. There's Priest, the one who looks like a hippie. He's got the long red hair. Yeah, he's uh, the Irish vampire. I guess we needed one of those. <sighs> <laughs> There's Chupa. Uh, the He wears chain mail. He looks like a college baseball player. He's the most forgettable of the group. But then rounding out the blood pack, there's two actors. Uh, this is going to be uh, Ron Perlman's first appearance with, in a Guillermo del Toro movie. He's going to play Reinhardt, which uh, good for him. I'm very happy for him that he formed this bond with Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, I'm on record as a fan of Ron Perlman. And so uh, I was very happy to see him in this movie. But then rounding out the blood pack, I, I saved the best for last. The snowman, uh, not much to say about him, except he's played by Donnie Yen. What the fuck is this movie doing with Donnie Yen? David, what the fucking holy shit? I did not remember this about Blade 2. I don't know where we are in Donnie Yen's career. This is a huge waste of Donnie Yen. Yeah, we're not even to Ip Man yet. I know that much. So, like, this would have been the opportunity to break him in America, if I if I remember correctly. But, like, ah, that, I don't think they do <laughs> as we go on with this movie. No, criminally underused. Uh, at least they didn't make him blind, which is what every other fucking American franchise loves to do with Donnie Yen. <laughs> but, yeah, I was stunned that Donnie Yen was this movie because this role is pretty forgettable. So the Blood Pack are essentially thrust upon Blade. They're like, all right, you got to fight the Reapers, but you have to fight them with the Blood Pack. And Blade seems okay with this. Like, as we'll find out. In fact, let's just go ahead and play a little bit of a clip of Blade knowing what's up. B-Man, what do you think? Sounds like a plan. What do you really think? They're going to fuck us the first chance they get. So we ain't going to do this, all right? We'll play along for now. They'll take us in deeper than we've ever been. Get a chance to see how their world really ticks. I like that Blade knows that they're not going to get the jump on him. It's these vampire hunters. They've been training to hunt Blade for two years now. And now suddenly he has to team up with them. I didn't want to buy this, but I like. But knowing that Blade knows not to trust these people, it helps me buy this, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I thought this is also an interesting kind of therefore moment. Like, all right, it was really Stephen Dorff's character who took down the vampire council in the first Blade movie, but... You know, the fact that the other vampire nation people, I don't, I don't see what is the fucking ruling structure here of the vampires. You go, the council reports to the head of the nation and then there's uh, the United Vampire League, whatever. But the fact that they're like, okay, Blade is a problem. We need to address him. Like, let's start training this unit to take him down. I thought that was cool. But when Blade first comes face to face with the blood pack, uh, Reinhardt, played by Ron Perlman, comes up to Blade and he's like, you know, me and the boys or me and the gang, we just have one question. And he gets real close to Blade and he goes... Do you blush? And David, I did not get this the first time I watched Blade 2. I didn't get the the joke or the comment. And the comment was, it's racist. He's asking a black guy if he blushes. Mm -hmm. The reason I didn't get it, David, is because these vampires are racist? It's like, <laughs> really? Like, you're still racist. Like, you know, you're evil. You view all humanity as cattle. You know, you want to kill Blade because he's killing your people, but also he, you don't like him because he's black. You're already evil, man. You don't need to also be racist evil. Really going out of their way to just get, just begging to be murdered. I mean, Mac, it stands to reason because you got to figure they've got it all. So what do people in current society who have it all, what do they have in common? They're all prejudiced. So it's, yeah, I, it makes sense to me. But also, it, it does kind of set up a funny joke here. You know, funny joke. But Blade is unfazed by it. 
hey, man, talk your shit, Blood Pack. You're a bunch of losers. And so he challenges Reinhardt. He's like, you want to take a swing at me? Come on. He makes a comment. He says, Adolf gets the first shot, which I, at first, I was like, Adolf Reinhardt? But no, he's calling him Adolf Hitler because he's he's a racist. He's prejudiced. I like shit-talking Blade. I want more of that. Like, I want... I want that Wesley Snipes to come out in Blade and, and, and little bits like this. I really enjoyed. He kind of like makes a little joke like, oh, so spooky. And then like kind of laughs it off. And then he goads Reinhardt into taking a swing. And when Reinhardt takes a swing and by he actually goads him into trying to shove a silver uh, stake into Blade's heart. And as soon as Reinhardt, you know, makes a move towards it, uh, Blade gets him like in some kind of wrist lock and then stabs him in the back of the head, stabs Reinhardt in the back of the head with a bomb. Basically, like, attaches a bomb to the back of Reinhardt's head, and he's like, you fuck with me once, Reinhardt. I'm going to explode this bomb that's connected to your goddamn head. Blade fucking rules, David. He rules. This was very cool. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah. So, Mac, Blade and his reluctant new team, the Blood Pack, gear up for a Reaper hunt. It's time to stake out the House of Pain, a hidden vampire safe house, which also happens to be the hottest nightclub in Prague. Once the Reapers attack, the team discovers that the traditional silver and garlic don't work on Reapers, but thank the goddess, sunlight still works fine. Scud finds himself in trouble when he's surrounded by Reapers. Whistler was supposed to be keeping lookout, but has suspiciously abandoned his post. Blood Packer Priest gets killed. Lighthammer gets bitten, and Nomak escapes after being seemingly too much for Blade to handle. So here we get our first like gearing up scene where Team Blade is sharing their weaponry with the Blood Pack because they have all these weapons that are made to kill vampires. And oddly enough, the Blood Pack does not have that weaponry. And Reinhardt during the scene like keeps talking shit. At some point, Blade like pulls out his little pocket detonator. You know, the detonator mm. to the bomb that's in the back of Reinhardt's skull. And he presses <laughs> like a, a primer button. He, he takes the safety off and the little thing in the back of Reinhardt's skull beeps and Blade goes, keep pushing, asshole. I fucking laughed out loud. David, every time Blade smiles in this movie when he says the line, I laugh. Mm -hmm. yeah. You just said it, David, and you're absolutely right. When Blade is talking shit is when Blade is at his best in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. It, And especially, you know, because knowing very little going into this movie, you, uh, you know, let's just say you're going off of the promos, the posters, the trailers, stuff like that. Blade is one cool customer. To see him use this side throughout the movie and not just have it be like a tag at the end, you know, kind of this, all right, fine, we'll give you a little bit of a, you know, we'll give you a little bit of a treat or whatever. No, he's he's a shit talker. He, you know, he's good at his job and he's going to talk his shit. I love it too. Yeah. Uh, but David, what do you feel about the weapons that the blood pack is getting equipped with here? The weapons are cool, but they kind of feel like wasted opportunities. And, and by that, I mean, like, you know, they're, they're showing off their arsenal. They've got their guns equipped with UV lights and you, you think, oh, wow, those are going to come in really handy. They don't really come in all that handy. They don't really use them the way they could have, I guess. At one point, Scud pulls out this thing he invented, which is like a fist sword blood thing. It's kind of you attach it to your wrist and, it, and a little blade comes out and it's blood associated. I don't know, like it pulls a sample or something. It's an anticoagulant. So in other words, like it basically, you know, instead of blood like clotting, it makes it go the other way. And he's like, you, you stick us to the bad guy, they'll blow up like a balloon. But you're right, David, do we get to see this actually happen? No, we do not. Or I think we do once when he hits Jared and it doesn't work on Jared. So it was just a waste. Yeah. Well, we don't see it in this moment. But while we're talking about wasted opportunities with weapons, Lighthammer has a hammer. He's got this, you know, big sledgehammer. And we see later that a spike comes out of it. And that's a cool reveal. But what are you going to do with it? Like, just be the guy with the hammer spike or the spike hammer and just just use that. I think this movie gets off on the reveal of things and not the execution of things. 
Yeah, I mean, I know that Guillermo del Toro has like a, I don't know, I'm not going to say a fetish, but an interest in kind of like these technical aspects of things like, oh, I, I want the gun to work this way and I want to see how it actually works and, and everything like that. But you're right. The whole point of these weapons is to have a cool gear up scene and then to also have these weapons be useless against Reapers. It's part of the story, but also the fact that they are useless is like... Did we need to spend that much time on them if they don't work? Or in the case of Lighthammer, he doesn't even fucking use that spike. Yeah. Uh, but once this team is geared up, it's time to go into this vampire hotspot, the House of Pain. And as you see Blade leading this team of you know vampires into battle, we get your standard issue, like badass team walk scene, right? Uh, I think the Van- Guardians of the Galaxy movies have proven that uh, if a team is going to walk kind of slow motion into battle or to about to fight, then it's kind of really all about the song. And this one has a cool song and, you know, it's all right. But then viewing this team walk is Whistler and he switches on his thermal scope. And you see they've already established that vampires' body temperatures are like, you know, 50 degrees internally Mm -hmm. instead of like 98.6. They're colder blooded, I guess, or colder blooded or just not as much circulation. I don't know. But when he switches on the thermoscope, you go from seeing Blade in the middle of the blood pack, like surrounded by you know a bunch of badasses, to now it's the very red, hot-blooded Blade surrounded by vampires. And so in that moment, this this cool like badass like let's hear a little bit of the music. I uh, I against I flesh in my flesh in my in my mind. This, this cool badass team walk kind of gets flipped on its head and you're like oh this isn't like a bunch of badasses going to battle this is blade surrounded by a bunch of vipers going into battle and i mm-hmm. thought that was a cool moment in fact it was my first mark out moment i thought that was done to a good effect and i was into it this, this whole sequence is cool i i feel i feel like at a loss though like i feel like talking about it it plays cooler in my head because they're gonna go to this nondescript building they're gonna walk in it's like this empty little foyer lobby. You know, they walk down this empty little corridor and they're they're preparing each other. Like, you're going to see things feeding. Don't forget why you're here. Like, we're not going to kill every vampire. We're here on a mission. Just maintain your cool. But then the doors open and it's a fucking rave. This could have been as cool as like the most Eisley Cantina where you walk in. And it's just like, what the hell is going on here? It's this wretched hive of scum and villainy. There's people, you know, kissing each other with razor blades. There's a guy getting his back cut open. It's gross and cool. But, like, there's just something about it that's just not landing the way a cool vampire rave could, I guess. No, I'm right there with you, man. If you're like, okay, they call this headquarters the House of Pancakes. And you walk in and it's 500 people in a rave. (laughs) And then scattered throughout the rave, three people are eating pancakes? You're like, I guess. (laughs) It didn't really feel like the House of Pain. It just felt like, okay, well, there's like a few people who are into this, but the most of us are here just to party or whatever. That ties into what you're saying. It felt like this is a a Guillermo del Toro punch that got pulled, maybe. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Dave, looking at this rave, I was never into raves, uh, right? I was never like a rave dude. But at the same time, it really was the pinnacle of like rhythmless dancing. Because, you know, you had to, there's no, there's no pressure on moving your hips at a certain time. It really was just like bobbing and then going crazy with your arms. I really feel like that was is, is my strong suit as a dancer is just doing stupid shit with my arms and hands. <laughs> and because I, I have no rhythm, David. And so I, I really feel mm. like if I was ever going to be uh, someone who uh, danced a lot in public, that, that that was my time and it's over now. You know, I'm not going to say a lot of positive things about 9-11, but I think what it did to raves it should not be undersold because I think raves at their heart were just, you know, hey, man, just feel uninhibited. Just let your body move. And then once 9-11 hit, it was like, hey, tighten that shit up. 
This feels like this was filmed in 2001. They're like, we still got to release it. So like, I- I'm I'm glad that we don't quite have raves anymore. Man, I remember going out for somebody's like 21st birthday, you know, that year when all your friends turned 21. Uh, somebody like came and it was like, oh, this is my friend, you know, whatever from back home, Steven. You know, we went to some dance club and then Steven started like rave dancing to like no diggity. And I was just like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> It's one of those things where it's like, look, we all have to do it or no one fucking does it. Because, look, we're here to grind, right? We're we're Jersey turnpiking. We're not making weird hand art. Yeah, we're going nuts to butts. Yeah, exactly. Nuts to butts. But David, the Reapers show up and it's another action set piece we'll call War at the House of Pain. The Blood Pack who do not give a shit about killing any other vampires just open fire. Just murder any vampires they want to as long as they take a couple of Reapers with them. But they don't. The Reapers are impervious to most of the weapons. Yeah, there's a lot going on here because, you know, because Blade and the Blood Pack come in. They're surrounded by two to three hundred suckheads and then all hell breaks loose. And then the Blood Pack essentially scatter. And we talk about this a lot in other episodes. The movie will have keep up cutaways where if your group is separated, then you've got to have... You got to check in on one group and then check in on the other, check in on the third, come back to the first and so on and so on and so on. So when this happens, we've got Lighthammer and Verlaine. They go downstairs to the basement bathhouse area. And then you've also got Asada Nisa somewhere else. Blade's going to f- go into this red room. Like everyone is is doing their own thing. And I think this is the moment where I realized this group feels too big. I know they're going to get pared down as the movie goes on, but like, do we really need, what is it, eight people in the blood pack? Like, the movie doesn't feel like it can sustain eight different characters going on at once. Yeah, and the fact that only really one person gets taken out priest gets taken out uh in this first you know action set piece i mean lighthammer as you mentioned does get bit although he hides it so you know lighthammer is not going to turn full on reaper until uh later in the movie but also david we get a better look at the reapers including the fact that they have mandibles mm-hmm. when they're about to feed their lower jaw separates and also they got like real gross like f- you know flower worm style tongues that come out it's gross uh and it's uh, very cool at the same time but yeah, they take out Priest and, uh, you know, Blade fights Nomak. And it's like, oh, Nomak, uh, we thought was going to be an easy kill for Blade. He used that dumb hand, like <laughs> anticoagulant injector that uh, Scud cooked up, but it doesn't work. It looks like these Reapers are going to be a tougher nut to crack. Oh, uh, actually, speaking of the keep up cutaways, I do want to go back to what Snowman is doing. You know, this is the moment where I was like, OK, Donnie Yen, everyone's going to have their moment to fight. Let's go. But it's kind of underwhelming. Like, I feel like the movie underuses him. He has, like, one slow-mo kick, and then there's a moment where he stabs a Reaper to the wall, and the Reaper crawls up the wall and, like, lets the, the sword that stabbed him split him in half, basically. Like, you know, kind of like if you if you ever, like, step on a lizard and, like, step on its tail, and then the, the lizard just breaks off the tail and runs away. It kind of felt like that. I mean, I know in theory what you're talking about, David, but stop stepping on lizards. (laughs) You know that thing you do. But this was one of those moments, and I alluded to at the beginning, where, you know, talking about it now, I'm like, oh, that is a cool moment where the Reaper is so intent on survival that he'll rip himself in half just to escape. But I feel like this could have played better in the pages of a comic book. Like, to see an artist do this a serviceable job would have been a lot cooler to me than seeing what was actually executed on the screen. I thought it was a cool moment, but you know what would have been a cooler moment? To see Donnie Yen kick some more ass. The fact that Donnie Yen, uh, Snowman, did not fight Blade in this movie, uh, that's a huge fuck up. That's my number one biggest all caps punch up. Have Snowman fight Blade. Also, why the fuck is he called Snowman? You know, everyone else's name sort of makes sense. Like, uh, you know, even Chupa. 
Like, oh, he's vampire. He sucks. I get it. Spanish for mm-hmm. sucker or whatever. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, at least make him like a coke addict or something or like have that be like, all right, time to power up. And then he does some toot and then he just goes berserkers on everybody. One last thing about the blood pack. When Lighthammer does get bitten by the Reaper and he, he's able to hide it, he's able to hide it because he has like this comically large collar on the uh, on the one side. And so he just pulls up the collar to hide his neck. I laughed out loud. Like that really was like, you know, you see it in every zombie movie and every vampire movie where it's just like, oh, I'm going to roll my sleeve down and hide the bite. Um, I'm going to stave this off for as long as I can. And so just to see Lighthammer just like, I'll flip my collar. Man, oh man, this movie fell for it too. Yeah, Lighthammer for being a big scary vampire is also like, oh, please don't let me die, which is kind of funny. <laughs> exactly. But Mac, the gang regroups later, including Whistler, who explains why he abandoned his post. And the reason why is because he followed one of the Reapers to the entrance of their hidden Reaper nest in the sewers. Sure, Whistler. Meanwhile, Nisa performs a real gross autopsy on a dead Reaper. We find out that it's super hard to stab them in the heart. So, Silver's out, Garlic is out, and Stakes through the heart are out. Sunlight it is. Scud builds a box full of flashbangs, the blood pack gears up again, and tensions flare between Blade and Whistler. So we cut back to Vampire Headquarters where old man vampire Damaskinos is getting like an update on the mission. And we see him eating blood jello, I guess, which is like, <laughs> oh, kind of funny. Like, oh, I'm so old. My, maybe his teeth are like, if I bite someone's neck, they just break off. <laughs> and so he's eating his little blood jello. That's cute. But then David, he instantly goes and like walks right into a giant bathtub filled with blood, a blood bath. Yes. Why did you, why are you eating this blood jello? It's like, oh, you see, basically he's like eating chocolate pudding and then he goes and takes a a bath in chocolate pudding. Well, no, it's more like he eats chocolate pudding and then he goes and bites a big hunk of chocolate. I thought you were doing thing A because you can no longer do thing B. You can clearly do thing B and it makes you strong enough to do thing B for, I don't know, maybe I did lose the metaphor on that one. But yeah, what the fuck, man? Why is this bloodbath here? It makes me wonder if vampires think having like a blood bath or a blood fountain in their home is cool. Like the way that, you know, someone is like, oh, my home has a water feature. It just makes me think like, oh, well, look, honey, a blood bath. He's doing quite well for himself. <laughs> a sparklet's full of Dr. Pepper. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. That sounds delicious. <laughs> but prior to the autopsy, they're examining this reaper that Whistler finds. And he finds like, you know, the the entrance to the uh, the reaper nest, the entrance to the sewer closed on the arm of this reaper who's just like eh. he's like basically like a zombie mm-hmm. and the team basically surmises like oh these reapers that nomad creates they're not sustainable nomad has his wits about him and he can you know uh feast and then then go on living but when he bites someone turns them into a reaper like their metabolism or whatever like it burns them out too fast and so they do not live forever mm-hmm. and so blade says like the Reaper menace ends with Nomak. Basically, like if they kill Nomak, even if he's created thousands of Reapers at that point, the Reapers will kind of burn themselves out. Hmm. Basically, by finding out this, the Reapers are this way, it's like, okay, well, we now have a window here where if we kill Nomak, we stop the Reaper threat. Uh, but if we let this keep going, then yeah, at some point, even though Nomak is dead, the there'll be like too many Reapers to where like it'll be out of control. Mm-hmm. It adds an interesting element to it, but also definitely like we got to kill this dude before this gets yeah. out of hand. And they're going to study the Reaper and they're going to do it with another classic autopsy del Toro because Guillermo del Toro loves fucking autopsies, David. If he did give some concessions in the production of this movie, if he did kind of give a little to take a little, I think this is where he took. This is really the centerpiece of what Guillermo del Toro does. 
like practical creature effects, getting into ripping open a reaper and seeing like the intricate details of their tongues of, you know, of their barbed tongues. And that's where the venom virus poison comes from. This is really neat. This is really gross. I enjoyed the heck out of it. Yeah. Apparently when you get bit by a reaper, not only does your, your lower jaw kind of fall off and gets turned into these mandibles, but also your body grows a bone cage around the heart. Mm -hmm. And we find out why later, but at this moment, you gotta be like, this is fucking weird, but it does make them harder to kill. Cause now instead of just like, you know, staking through maybe some ribs to get to a heart, you know, you'd hit this like thick bone wall that protects the heart. So basically like, unless you're a blade, it's pretty hard to uh, stake a vampire in the heart. Yeah. I thought that was a cool detail, but as they're doing this autopsy, Nisa's performing the autopsy. She needs a, a second hand. So she asks Scud to help. She wants Scud to like squeeze one of the Reaper's mandibles to see if uh, any venom comes out or, or something like that. I'm not quite sure if this is supposed to be a funny moment. Let's just go ahead and play the audio here. Open the mouth, Scud. <laughs> Open the mouth. B, come on. Sissy. I'm not going to be too... Uh, too progressive about the use of the term sissy. There's just something about teasing Scud in this moment that that falls flat with me. Like, I don't know. I think we would all be scared. Stick our fingers into a reaper's mouth. Like for Blade to pile on top of that, it, it felt uncalled for. Yeah. Also, look, I'm, I'm the last person in the world to say this, but did it feel weird he didn't say pussy? A little. Yes, very much yeah. so. Yeah. <laughs> Sissy felt like a weird choice. I'll say that. There it is. Yeah, absolutely. But at some moment, Scud and Whistler are talking, and Scud is like, you know, I think the B-Man actually views you as a father figure, Whistler. And at that moment, I wanted Whistler to say, yeah, no shit. It's because I raised him. <laughs> but then we get a little bit of uh, Scud's backstory here. I guess. So Scud tells his introduction to Blade as best as he can. Basically, Scud was backpacking through Europe. He gets involved in some threesome with two other ladies, and they turn out to be vampires. They turn him, I believe, and our Blade rescues him just in time. I don't quite recall the nuts and bolts of this, but it does feel like there's more to the story. I don't know. This just felt like such an incomplete snippet of like, oh, yeah, I was backpacking through Europe. I was having sex with some ladies, and... Blade busted through my window or something. Just like hero of the day. I don't know. This is this was not for me. Well, we find out later that Scud uh, was like a plant. He's a uh, familiar of Damaskinos. It does make me wonder, like forever, or was it after he started working with Blade? Because was this whole situation basically like a trap to lure Blade? to like rescue Scud and therefore like take Scud under his wing or something like that. It is funny, David, because the way Scud tells a story, he's like, yeah, I met a couple ladies. I decided to take them back so we could have a three-way. And next thing I know, like they start ripping chunks out of me. The fact that he still tells the story framed is like, uh, we were going to fuck. It's like, no, dude, the story is I got tricked by some vampires and they <laughs> started attacking me, not the ladies I was about to bone turned out to be vampires. Yeah, you're bearing the lead when you don't tell the story from, oh, I was being ripped apart. My flesh was being torn from me. Instead, you're just like, two chicks at the same time. Like, that's a very, yeah. that feels very early 2000s. But it looks like the team is going to go into the sewers to the, the, find this reaper nest and, and kill the reapers. And so we have another gearing up scene. And at some moment, like Blade's like talking to the crew. And he calls Nisa by her name. He's like, hey, Nisa, you okay? Or something like that. It was a little interesting moment. And Whistler, uh, he don't like it. David, what's going on with Blade and Nisa? I 
don't know. I think the movie wants to develop a relationship between them, but I'm just not feeling it in this moment. Like there is a tender moment, not a tender moment, but there is kind of um, a human moment, I guess, between Nisa and Blade where Blade's giving shit to the blood pack. He, you know, he he's talking more mess to them. He's looking down on them. And Nisa kind of pulls him aside and she's like, the way you talk to them, why do you hate us? Like, you know, why do you hate vampires so much? What, what, what's the, what's the root of that? And I can't speak for Blade and vampires in general, but I do know with relation to the Blood Pack, this is a group that was designed to kill Blade. It's understandable that he would kind of keep them at arm's length. So for the movie to try to shoehorn a moment between Nisa and Blade, it, that that felt insincere to me. Yeah, I don't buy any sort of romantic relationship at this point. But Nisa continually is like, look, Blade, I know who I am. I was born a vampire. You know, if you're uh, born a wolf who hunts smaller animals, you know, why are you blaming the wolf for, you know, being a predator? But what I do see from Blade towards Nisa is respect because, look, the fucking blood pack, a bunch of clowns, right? They're like exactly the kind of like dumb, like vampires that Blade like hunts. They're greedy. They don't give a shit about life, vampire life, human life, whatever. But Nisa, like, you know, she's about her business. She's like, she knows her shit. The actor who plays her is i don't know if this is a, a skill level thing but choosing to play her very serious and some might say wouldn't mm-hmm. i i want to say it's some respect I, I think blade is like okay this is a person who who knows their shit and yeah because she was born a vampire she's not someone who like chose to be this like you know human predator she just that's what she is you know i'm taking a look at our notes right now and i think this is by far the clunkiest section of the movie you know talking about Scud's conversation with Whistler, where you're first to him as the father figure, talking about Scud's backstory, talking about Nisa and Blade's dynamic. And then you're going to cap it off with tensions between Blade and Whistler. I think Whistler feels like Blade is showing too much sympathy for the, uh, for the vampires. Almost, you know, there's some distrust developing between Blade and Whistler, which I did not get the sense that that was supposed to be bubbling under until this moment. And so since it caught me by surprise in this moment, it felt it felt too forced and so I like this chunk is it it really does a disservice to the rest of the movie. Yeah, I wish they had just out and out said it. Like I wish Whistler had been like, I fucking hate these vampires. They killed my family. The fact that you're willing to work with them for any reason is a betrayal. Just like fucking say it, Whistler. Mm-hmm. Because the fact that you just kind of like mealy mouth, like, oh, I don't like it, right? like goes along with it. What happens is they never have that conversation. There's no character arc here with uh, Blade. The fact that he learns to respect a, a vampire, Nisa, in the end, like, what is that? Where does that get him? Where does that put him? And I don't think it takes him anywhere new. I think at the end of the movie, he's like, well, time to kill some more suckheads. Like, <laughs> but yeah, you're right. This is, this is a clunky section. I don't think that's Guillermo del Toro's strong suit is to fix awkward sections like this. I think his strong suit is to be like, this section needs another autopsy or whatever. So let's get back to the action. Okay. So the gang descends into the sewer to destroy the Reaper nest in an action set piece we'll call Sewer Slaughter. Whistler suggests everyone split up into smaller groups. Whistler is with the B team of Reinhardt and Chupa when Reinhardt and Chupa decide to gang up on Whistler. Snowman, Verlaine, and Lighthammer make up the C team because Lighthammer turns into a Reaper, kills the infinitely more interesting Snowman, and it's up to Verlaine to sacrifice herself to kill Lighthammer with sunlight. Adios, C team. Adios. As for the A team of Blade, Nisa, and Asad, they get ambushed by Reapers. Asad gets killed and Nisa gets hurt. 
before Blade activates the UV bomb and kills all of the Reapers except Nomak. Blade saves Nisa from death by giving her some of his blood before Damaskinos' lawyer shows up and captures Blade and Whistler. Ugh. That is an active uh, lawyer. And yes, David, that was that's a lot of little things that happen. I'll say this, Blade being part of a team is awesome. It's part of the appeal of this movie, a sequel, right? You got to go a little bit bigger. The fact that we see Blade, you know, working as part of a team and like ordering people around, it fucking rules. I, I love it. And even though the team is a bunch of, you know, shitty vampires, uh, which is why the fact that he gets a chance to command a team in the next Blade movie and it just fucking sucks is just another. Uh, <laughs> that's a shame that movie sucks so much. There's there's something there. And I'll, I'll save it for my punch ups because I really think the group dynamic could work. I just don't know if it works in this moment. Part of the frustration is the splitting up and there's sort of this group gerrymandering going on where like, okay, so Blade, Nisa, and Asad make up make up the only team without a hindrance. Uh, Whistler gets, gets put in a group with Reinhardt and Chupa. They turn on him because they're mad that Blade cost them Priest. Priest is dead because, because of Blade. So now we're going to take one of Blade's friends. And then you've got the other team. Uh, Lighthammer turns on Snowman because Lighthammer turns. Well, man, we wasted like the best parts of these other teams. Like, I kind of wish we had spread out the coolness and the strengths throughout all three teams instead of just having one team with Blade. They're going to survive, and then the other two are just going to go are just going to go sideways. Like, I, I don't know. It it didn't work for me. I've got punch ups about it later. Yeah, the fact that the light hammer, uh, him turning, you know, because we we knew he got bitten, and the fact that when he he does turn, he just takes out two other team members, one of which takes out him. It's like, oh, and we're done. Like it's I don't know. And the fact that one of them was Snowman Donnie Yen, yeah, that whole thing was like, okay, we could have done this earlier if this is what we we're gonna do. But credit where credit is due, the sacrifice that Verlaine makes to kill Lighthammer because Lighthammer fully turns into a Reaper. He kills Snowman. He's coming after Verlaine, so Verlaine climbs up the you know the sewer ladder lifts up the manhole cover lets the sunlight in she burns herself and burns Lighthammer. i thought that was awesome that's another one of those things where maybe the cgi doesn't do it any favors but i thought that was a really cool moment yeah i like that moment too and you get the sense that it was difficult choice for verlaine i feel like you could have i don't know maybe if i gave a shit more about those characters that would have been a uh, more interesting moment to have someone kill herself and her lover because her lover is now a reaper. It was cool. Well, let me play a real, a real quick audio here of Whistler. They're getting ready to go into the tunnels. And he, he just has this moment real quick. Trying to attract him, not scare him off. Yeah, well, some of us can't see in the dark, you fucking nipple head. What am I supposed to do? Bifocals, Grandpa, and try to keep up. I, I only bring this up because I do want to say, full disclosure, this is going to be my reset whenever I do my Chris Christopherson impression. Because it's just, some of us can't see in the dark, nipple head. I've been saying nipple head for the better part of two weeks now, just because I really enjoy the way Chris Christopherson says it. Wait, he calls him nipple head? He's got a head like a nipple, because it gets sucked on. Okay, I guess. <laughs> I, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but once that uh, that trio gets some distance, once they're by themselves, Reinhardt, Chupa, and Whistler, Reinhardt and Chupa are like, all right, guess what? We're we're not gonna we're breaking our little truce here. Their plan is to beat Whistler to death because the fact that a member of the Blood Pack died. If one of us dies, Blade needs to lose one of his. Which I don't get the sense they give a shit about each other in the Blood Pack. But sure, if they want to go ahead and, and beat up uh, Whistler here, fine. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, exactly. There's no 
there's no camaraderie between these guys. They're all mercenaries. So for them to be like, this one's for priest, especially priest, like at least, you know, if snowman had died or something, or like if something when someone with a bond, but like you could lose priest, but the reapers arrive, they are sort of lying in wait underwater in this like cistern or something like that. And they end up killing Assad. To save Nisa, uh, Blade is like, go, get out of here. I'll, I'll, I'll fend them off. And then basically it's like, all right, everyone evacuate. We got to get out of here. Let's let's go. And uh, what, what happened to the the, the box of flashbangs? We're going to set off all these like, you know, basically like UV light bombs. Reinhardt's like, oh, I left it over there <laughs> down that tunnel. And so Blade's like, you guys get out of here. I'll go set off the bombs. And then Reinhardt's like, oh, did I mi- I forgot to mention the handle on the light bomb is broken. But guess what? Blade gets it to work and he sets off this UV bomb, basically. And so, David, as I understand it, all, every one of these bombs just lets off a lot of UV light. And as I understand it, light travels fast. Some might say at the speed of light. And so the <laughs> fact that they turn on this UV bomb and the uh, light wave like slowly spreads out. Am I missing something or is this just horse shit? No, no, you're not missing anything. You caught exactly what they were throwing, and it, it was a dribbler back to the mound. Like, it's a light explosion. It's supposed to be instantaneous, but it conveniently gives Nisa enough time to, like, dive under the water. But I will say this, though. Wesley Snipes coming to save the day by selling stuff. You know, before he hits that lever, before he gets it to work, and before he detonates the light bomb, he's got a kill line. He's got a message for all those Reapers. He says... You do not know who you are fucking with. And this is going to be my first markout moment. I was just, it was Wesley Snipes being Wesley Snipes. It was the character of Blade being a badass. Uh, I was very much into it, despite the faults of the light explosion. This will be my first markout moment. Blade is a badass and Blade knows he's a badass. And that's great. Like if Blade was a badass mm-hmm. and he was like, oh, sh- oh shucks, am I bad? I don't know. It's like, no, you're, you're, you're fucking ruling. You know it. And so, yeah, another awesome moment from Blade here. Be right. Nisa's like, here comes some light. And she like is able to duck, but she still gets mostly burned. And she looks like David that she's going to die. But Blade's like, here, have some of my blood. And he slits his wrist, is feeding her like a mama, feeding her uh, baby bird. And uh, I guess this is like a tender moment because like Nomax sees it too. And he's like, eh, gross. Any thoughts on this? Uh, You know, because Blade cares about Nisa, David. He didn't let her die. Yeah, this felt like the moment where I understood that the movie's trying to make a relationship work between the two of them, which is a very clunky way to say that. I had some doubts about it, though, because I felt like I should have been bringing vampire knowledge to this scene does this hurt Blade in any way? Does this does this weaken him? I feel like this should have done something detrimental to him, but I'm just not doing the math for this movie. Yeah, I think it weakens Blade like the same way that you might feel weak after donating blood. So yeah, I, I think he, he he's not like putting himself at, he's not going to die afterward. But I, I think he is like less powerful. Maybe it doesn't matter because he does get captured instantly by the lawyer and a bunch of like shock troops. They like electrocute Blade and take him back to headquarters. If you had some like throwaway line, the fact that look, Blade's job is probably pretty lonely, and we've established in the first movie Blade is a lover, not just a fighter. And so, you know, the fact that Blade's like, I got it to your nut. Uh, <laughs> the fact that Blade, like, you know, he meets uh, someone that he respects and that she's a vampire. You know, maybe he's like torn inside. Like, am I attracted to a vampire? What the fuck's the problem with me? You know, like that would have been interesting to see in the character. Like this a little Romeo Juliet action here. We're from two different worlds. 
But yeah, we we don't get any of that. We just get the fact that like Blade is a hero and heroes sacrifice themselves and this is what heroes do, which is fine. But that is like, you know, a little expected. And, and then uh, to follow that up with, like you said, Blade gets captured. Whistler gets captured. Here comes the lawyer and some uh, some foot soldiers to shock them into submission. It felt like the wrong button on this moment because it's this moment of triumph and immediately Blade is kind of taken back down to size by the lawyer, by Carol. I don't know. From the second act on, I have issues with the movie. Whistler also gets captured. But Dave, before he gets captured by the Damaskinos troops, he gets captured by Nomak. Well, not really captured. Nomak, he has Whistler, but he doesn't kill Whistler. He's like, Whistler, I want to tell you a secret. And he whispers something into Whistler's ear. And then Whistler does like a really funny, like, oh, head turn, like, oh, what a juicy secret. And then Nomad <laughs> gives Whistler uh, his class ring, his vampire class ring, and some secret information, which we don't know what that secret information is at this point, David. But uh, we do know that Whistler uh, and Blade have been in, uh, in the hands of the bad guys. No, we also know that Nisa has a ring just like the one that Nomad gave him. So uh, we'll put two and two together. But Blade, Whistler, and Scud are locked up in an underground chamber in the law offices of Eli Damaskinos, where Damaskinos reveals that Reapers like Nomad didn't evolve. They were designed in a lab just like this one. Reinhardt gloats over the captured Blade, but when Blade tries to activate Reinhardt's skull bomb, it turns out that the explosive is a dud built by another traitor, Scud! But Blade was on to Scud the whole time, and the bomb isn't a dud after all. Bye, Scud! Blade gets slapped on a weird spike table to be harvested for blood and organs and whatnot, when here comes Nomak to the rescue. Is the enemy of my enemy my friend? David will never know the answer to that. <laughs> David, a big reveal here. Nomak and the Reapers, they weren't some weird genetic mutation. It, it, was, a, it was a fuck up mutation. It was like a Jurassic World when they tried to make their own dinosaur. It was an attempt by the vampire nation. Or is that what they're called? I forget. It was a tip by Vampire Incorporated to basically create a super vampire, right? And that's why the heart gets covered in bone. It wasn't because like, oh, that's just how the mutation evolved. Pretty crazy, huh? It was because there was <laughs> a genetic feature of the super vampire. It's like, oh, what if uh, their hearts are you know covered in, in bone? It would make the, uh, the people couldn't stake us as easily. David, was, was this really that much of a twist? Was that that much? Were you shocked at this reveal? No, and especially the way the reveal is revealed where like they're talking about the ring that Jared gave to Whistler and Damaskinos is like, I thought it would have been obvious at this point, a gift from father to son. And I'm like, you guys look like each other. Like, it's not really that big of a stretch to assume. Yeah, I had that exact same thought when they show up, when Damaskinos and Nomak are talking face to face. I'm like, you're the same dude. You're the exact same fucking dude. Why was this a <laughs> twist? But Nisa's hurt. She's like, you lied to me, father. You know, you put our nation at risk just because you were trying to come up with a, a blade proof vampire. Uh, you have betrayed me or something. I don't know. You know, it's all kind of, Going downhill, I guess, like, you know, Blade finds out he's been betrayed. Nisa finds out she's been be betrayed, but like she's also been, you know, she was let out to run, you know, to lead the blood pack. Damaskinos was pretty much sending her out to certain doom on this wild goose chase. Yeah, no, that's shit job, Damaskinos. Yeah, and then you have a weird sort of like uh, re reveal-a-thon when Scud's like, Blade, I'm one of Damaskinos' familiars. I tricked you, Blade. And then Blade's like, I was on to you being on to me. I don't know. It just was, it's one of those things where you're like, sure, why not? This bomb is a dud. And Blade's like, I knew you thought I knew the bomb. It's a dud. So that's why it's not a dud. It was like, oh, yeah, checkmate, Blade. Oh, we're not even talking about how he finds out the bomb is a dud because 
because we find out that Reinhardt was also um, duplicitous. And so Blade's like, well, who cares? I've got the bomb on you. Twist on twist on twist. Too many twists. Uh, but this does culminate in a very rewarding moment for Blade when he does say, I've been on to you since they turned you. He detonates the bomb while Scud is holding it. The bomb goes kablooey. Scud goes everywhere. This is going to be my second mark out moment. I really appreciated the kablooey on this one. Yeah, it was a very funny Scud death. And the fact that he is named Scud, I feel like this is his manifest destiny was to <laughs> just explode like this. But also, like right before he dies, when Scud realizes oh, the bomb is going to blow up, his the last word spoken on Earth, he just goes, ah, great. And then he explodes. <laughs> and just that, ah, great. is just, I don't know. That, that, was, that was very funny. Yeah, very funny. But... You know, it's all for naught. Blade does still get captured or recaptured. He gets thrown onto this bed of spikes. You know, these spikes are going to inject into every part of Blade's body. They're going to drain him of his blood. They're going to take everything they can from Blade to make a whole army of Daywalkers. Uh, And here comes Whistler to save the day and pull him off the the spikes. This is going to be the sort of tender moment that I was talking about between Whistler and Blade, between Chris Christopherson and Wesley Snipes, where you do finally get the culmination of that father-son dynamic where Whistler essentially says, hey man, you didn't give up on me. I'm not going to give up on you. you. You chased me for two years to save my life. The least I could do is save you in this moment. I liked it. I wish this movie had carried that sort of weight throughout the movie. Yeah, is it so much to ask for that a character says, I love you to another one? Oh, masculinity. <laughs> Tough being a dude in a vampire killing world. It is. But while Blade is on that table to get his like blood sucked out, uh, Whistler, before he escapes, is being uh, held captive by Reinhardt, who I guess is going to beat him to death again. They, Oh, vampires, just, just kill people. Why do you guys got to torture him or beat him to death or monologue him? But Whistler here, he's like, fine, dude, fucking kill me. In fact, let's hear some audio. Keep talking, Hunky Tongue. Just makes my sending you the next world. All the sweeter. Been there. Done that. Do your worst, chicken shit. We'll settle up after. We'll settle up afterward. That makes me think that Whistler's saying, when all is said and done, basically when our souls are in the afterlife, right? Like, that's where he'll settle it? Because, like, after you kill me, we'll settle it up. I thought it was like, I'll save you for last. Like, I've still got Damaskinos and the Nomak fish to fry. But when I'm done frying those fish, I'll come after you. To be honest with you, I'm not even remembering this moment. So, like, it, it clearly didn't leave an impression on me. The thing that left an impression on me was Whistler's escape from this chamber where the foot soldiers are coming and he just finds this convenient panel in this chamber that's supposed to be their prison. No, he had no trouble getting out. So I that was the moment that I, that stayed with me. But if Whistler was indeed talking about like the afterlife, it's like, we'll settle up after. Like, I'll see you basically saying I'll see you in hell. What kind of afterlife do they believe in where it's like, okay, when you die, there's like a fighting arena, (laughs) like where you get to see your enemies one last time and really go after it. That is my understanding of what Hellboy is. So that's not too far off. Is that Whistler's idea of I'll see you in hell? Or is that like, this is what I want from heaven, dear sweet baby Jesus? What if he had said, I'll see you in hell, boy? There's their punch Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but when, when Blade is on the table, he's talking to the lawyer and he's like, no, Mac. And the lawyer's like, what, what, what? Why do you bring him? No, Mac. It's like, he's coming here. And he's like, well, he doesn't know where here is, stupid. And Blade's like, yeah, he does now. You know, Blade somehow, he tipped off Nomac or he knows that Nomac followed them or something, beats the fuck out of me. Mm -hmm. But now that like he's, the Nomac has gone from like, you know, he's not the main bad guy. He's kind of like a force of nature at this point. Like he just shows up when he shows up. I thought it was an interesting shift for Nomac because 
Nomak as the big bad, like the Reaper is like the, I was kind of getting bored with it. So the fact that Nomak is now a pain in the ass of the, the Vampire International, uh, I was I was on board with that. It is an interesting face turn. It's also telling that the movie could not sustain that face turn and it turns him back into the baddie for the final battle. But yeah, there was something interesting about that. Logic be damned. I don't know how he got there either or how he knew their whereabouts of this office building downtown, but like, here he comes. And there was something really cool about that. I almost wished that there was a Blade Nomak team up. There are certain elements of this leaving me flat, but on its surface level, let's go. Let's have a Nomak face turn. Yeah, but BU, BU, uh oh, Reaper alarm at Vampire National Headquarters because Nomak is here. Uh, that's right. While Damaskinos tries to escape the pursuing Nomak, Reinhardt tries to eliminate Blade once and for all, but he shoots Blade into a pool of blood, seemingly forgetting that blood will make Blade stronger. It's a short action set piece we'll call Bloodbath, Bloodless Bath. Blade fully heals and murders the fuck out of some normal human guards and then slices Reinhardt literally in half. Damaskinos tries to escape, but Nomak wants one final showdown. The son kills the father, and then Nisa says to Nomak, you're my new dad now, before offering herself to Nomak to get sucked off. David, there's got to be a better way to say that. Blade I mean, kills just... Nomak, then helps Nisa see the sunlight before she dies. So, Nomak's in hot pursuit. He is a man with a purpose. He's come to to kill Damaskinos and claim his rightful place as the ruler of Vampire Nation. Nothing will stop this guy. The foot soldiers are firing bullets at him. He's still pursuing. They raise the drawbridge. He jumps over the drawbridge. That was pretty cool. But elevator doors, they have no problem stopping Nomek. He's got to wait till the next one or he's got to take the stairs. There's, I, I enjoyed that moment. You got to give us a reverse shot of Nomek like sighing outside the elevator like... <sighs> And like looking around for the button and then pressing it like you just you got to give it to us. But Blade, even though he is freed, he just got drained of almost all of his blood. He's like dying and he's just like walking along this like scaffolding and Reinhardt sees him and he's just like kind of just taking pot shots with a shotgun, really not even trying to really not putting too much effort into killing Blade. But he does shoot him, David. But he shoots him as Blade is trying to dive into this bloodbath, a bath, you know, giant blood pool. It's kind of like he uh, he makes Blade fall uh, quicker. He kind of just speeds it up for Blade. Yeah, there could have been a really tense and thrilling moment where Reinhardt is trying to fight Blade, trying to keep him from the bloodbath. But instead, he shoots Blade. Blade falls forward into the pool of blood. Perhaps the dumbest decision in movie history it was to the point where, like, I had to stop and be like, wait, no, that helps him, right? Like, is the movie smarter than me? Am I dumb? What's going on here? But no, I was I was smarter than the movie, I guess. And again, these fucking vampires and their bloodbaths, I, I have to believe it's like a status thing. Blade almost instantly pops up from the bloodbath. He's at full power now because, yeah, he's soaked up all that blood super quick. It must have been really good blood because he's like super strong now. And a bunch of these guards, in my mind, they're human guards, like just familiars. Mm -hmm. They attack uh, Blade and Blade just uh, fucking kicks her ass uh, pretty easily here. One quick aside. Uh, this is going to be a small nitpick on my part. So Blade falls into the blood, fully heals. So when he comes out, you think, oh, he's rejuvenated. He is at 100%. But when the foot soldiers come, when the guards come, he cracks his neck. Like he's getting ready to fight. You, it's a trope that you see in movies. But if he's healed, he has no neck problems. He doesn't need to crack his neck. I don't know. That's me being stupid. Well, maybe if his body is like sucking up all that blood, it just makes his muscle tense. I love thinking about that. <laughs> but it's going to be Blade versus the guards. Another snipe showcase. This is really excellent work. His combat with the guards, 
MVP of this movie, Wesley Snipes, you know, MVP of the movie he stars in, but still, I'm really glad that we got to do this movie to show what Wesley Snipes can do. Yeah, after fighting a lot of vampires, this is just Blade versus humans, and he's just really kicking their ass. A lot of really cool fighting from Wesley Snipes. But David, uh, at some point, (laughs) Blade is like kicking ass. He's showing off because Reinhardt is like waiting. He's like the mid-level boss, like waiting for him to, to get rid of all these enemies first. And so the final human <laughs> blade like lifts him up in a suplex and like holds him and then suplexes the last, the final human guard onto the ground and then whoo, instantly pops back up like just way too fast. <laughs> it was so fucking funny that I it was my second markout moment. I just was like, oh, hell yeah. yeah. And then here comes Reinhardt. He's like going to tell him some fucking story about his life. You know, my dad said right before he killed my mom, if you want to do something right, you got to do it yourself. Also, one more thing. And he doesn't really get to finish because as he's trying to like kill Blade with his own sword, Blade holds the broad or like the flat end of the sword in his hands, crow style, right? When like the crow caught that knife. And he basically is like, it doesn't matter how strong Reinhardt is. Blade is like three times as strong. Takes the sword from Reinhardt. Give me that bitch. And he cuts Reinhardt literally in half this is a cool moment question mark i'm asking or i'm not asking i I know it is a cool moment on paper reinhardt gets fucking sliced in half that's awesome but my problem with it again going back to the cgi it doesn't really do the moment any favors like i really wish i could have seen this on a comic page that would have stayed with me for the rest of my life watching a guy get sliced in half but in this movie, it it felt kind of silly. Yeah, the CGI did make it seem a little silly. It could have been an even cooler death scene if, like, we just waited like a beat more for him to explode into embers. Like, we actually saw some like more gore, which is I mean, again, I'm not a gore advocate, but if you're gonna cut a guy in half, I don't want it to seem like magic. Mm-hmm. Blade in this entire scene is not wearing his sunglasses, and there's something I don't know if they put like special contacts on Wesley Snipes. They do at some point after he like feeds. But there's something about like seeing Wesley Snipes' eyes as Blade because you usually don't see his eyes. It's basically like, oh, now I get to see Blade with even more emotion coming through in the character. He kicked it up to that extra notch where I was like, I'm into it. Maybe not so much me because this is all going to culminate in the moment where Blade's going to go take down Damaskinos. He's going to take down Nomak and Whistler's like, hold up or whatever he says. And he throws Blade's sunglasses to him. Blade catches the sunglasses. I recognize that this is an iconic moment. I recognize that people are going to love this. Not to me. This feels silly, but I'm just going to let the movie play out. See, I'm coming off that Marco moment with the suplex. A Blade just cut Reinhardt in half. When Reinhardt's definitely signed his murder permission slip a long time ago. So when when Blade catches the sunglasses, like boop, and then like puts them on. At that moment, I'm watching and I'm literally doing this. I'm like, just kind of like, <laughs> bobbing my head. I'm like, fuck yeah, let's do Like, I'm just like, at this moment, you've already got me to mark out. You're just running up the score. Like, it's a it's a badass moment for no reason, kind of. Mm-hmm. We're doing badass shit. You know, we're badasses. We do badass shit. So when he did this, yeah. yes, I marked out. It was my, another mark out moment uh, for sure. But then David, who do we want to die the most in this movie? It's fucking Reinhardt. Uh, do you really give mm-hmm. a shit about Nomak? No, there. Yeah, to think that like the Nomak and Damaskinos are both still alive. They're both in play for the final, you know, portion of this movie. But we killed Reinhardt. We sliced him in half. Let's go home. Let's have some cake. But no, Nomak kills Damaskinos, and now Nomak, you know, he starts to kill Nisa, and that's when Blade shows up, and now it's Blade versus Nomak. I don't even, is this an action set piece? I guess. Uh, I don't even care at this moment. <laughs> Wait, Nomak, there's something about him. He's a little bit boring. He he never 
By the way, also shout out Nomak for never changing out his, uh, his like pretend homeless gear. He's still wearing 50 coats at the end of this movie. I was hoping that would be a thing like, oh, you know, vampires get cold or reapers get cold. Like that's one of their weaknesses or something. But no, it's he just loves coats. But David, what do you think about this Blade Nomak final battle? Underwhelming. I mean, you know, that's going to happen when you go from Nomak just had a face turn 10, 15 minutes ago. That was satisfying in its own right. So to have him become the big bad at the end of this thing, to have him take out Demoskinos, to have him completely, you know, remove Demoskinos from the Blade equation, it was underwhelming. It did not work for me. Yeah, at some point, Blade stabs Nomak with his sword, and then Nomak breaks Blade's sword, which, you know, Blade, he blew his car a little kiss. I think, I thought Blade would have been more upset about his sword breaking. But then Blade, like, grabs the the blade of his sword blade on blade right he's holding this very sharp sword with his bare hand just cutting open his hand and uses it to stab nomak through his bone covered heart through the bone barrier into his heart and that's how nomak dies but david yeah i didn't give a shit about this fight especially look because nomak just ate a bunch of blood right from you know uh, everyone he killed wesley snipes blade just drink a bunch of blood from that blood pool so basically we're watching two people fight after they just ate which is not a great fight and there's more like pro wrestling stuff in this fight. Like at some point, Nomak delivers an atomic elbow onto Blade. I don't know. It's kind of who gives a shit time. And so, but yeah, Blade beats Nomak and Nisa's is dying. And she's like, I want to see the sun one last time, which could have been a very touching and beautiful moment. But instead, they look out over a really weird CGI sunset, which doesn't do anybody any favors. And then there's one more joke where Blade kills uh, a vampire who I believe is like a, a comedian in real life, uh, that actor. But anyway, uh, Blade kills a vampire in like a peep show. And that is the end of Blade 2. All right, David, how many markout moments did you have? Do you have any moms in this movie? I had two moms, Mac. How about you? Uh, respectable three. David, is this someone's favorite movie? I'm going to ask you that. This was one of your favorites. How are you feeling about this this time around? Man, David, it was one of my favorite movies. But now watching this again, I do super like it, but I don't think I can call it that any longer. I mean, I do love Wesley Snipes as Blade. Un unfortunately, like the things that this movie introduced to me, I feel like I've just seen it. It's no fault of Blade 2, but it, Blade 2 is like a little less special now because of all the other like superhero movies that are out there. And and maybe if the Blade story had ended better, like if Blade Trinity was was better than it was, maybe, you know, this would have been like, oh man, the Empire Strikes Back of an awesome Blade trilogy. I don't know. It, it was not. But yeah, I mean, I think this movie's great, but it isn't one of my favorite movies anymore. It's one of my favorite Blade movies. Yeah. No, I, you know, I, I don't want to come too down on this movie because... You know, think about it for what it was in 2002. It was an R-rated Marvel vampire movie starring Wesley Snipes kicking ass. If movies had stopped in 2003, absolutely, this could be somebody's favorite movie. But we've seen better iterations. We've seen an evolution of movies. So, yeah, I'm not quite sure it's going to have the shelf life. But a great performance by Wesley Snipes. A really fun superhero movie by Guillermo del Toro. It's got a lot of, like, really fun ideas in it and just uh, and really enjoyable from start to finish. Eh, except for the finish. Yeah. <laughs> All right, David, time for punch-ups. Okay, David, we're the ultimate script doctors. Everybody knows that. How would you fix this movie? How would you punch it up? I've got a few. My first one is, I, you know, I was very clear about not liking the blood pack. If I had my druthers, this movie would have been Wesley Snipes and Chris Christopherson, and that's it. I kind of feel like this would have been better served as a series, like like the old Kung Fu series, where it's just Kane walking the earth, going getting into adventures. Like, I think you have plenty with Blade and Whistler, 
hunting vampires. But if you are going to keep the blood pack, my punch up is have Blade train the blood pack. Have them be a ragtag group of vampires that he trains, kind of like the Seven Samurai. Build that dynamic where the trainers form a bond with the trainees. That way, when the betrayal hits, the betrayal hits harder. When you're like, oh my God, Reinhardt, I, you know, I trained you to to be on the right side of things and now you're betraying me. Oh my God, Scud. You know, I guess you kind of get that with Scud, but I, you know, it, it didn't land, but like, I think something there. Yeah. You know, Nisa at some point is like, she's like, father blade is an honorable man. If some members of the blood pack had come around and they were on Blade's side, that's interesting. Yeah, for sure. Uh, my final punch up, it's going to go back to the final fight where Nomak, kills Damaskino. So he essentially takes his powers to become the head of the vampire council or whatever. If you're going to kill Damaskino, so if you're going to literally suck the life out of him, Nomak should have acquired that life. And I kind of wanted a super Nomak. I almost wanted like a Bane type character where he just swells up. He becomes two sizes too big. Like he's hopped up on Venom and that's going to be the formidable opponent for Blade. But instead, it's just still, you know, Burlington Coat Factory guy. And, you know, it, it didn't work for me. But I, I would have liked to have seen a Super Nomak. Yeah, man. It, it, maybe he even, like, raided Damaskinos' closet and he sees, like, a really thick winter coat. And he's like, say now. You know, like, or I don't know. <laughs> uh, besides the punch-ups I mentioned throughout, a couple more. One, w- right when Reinhardt shoots Blade and Blade falls into the blood pool. Like, the idea, I guess, is that Reinhardt, like, you know, he tags Blade with a shotgun and Blade's like, oh, and like falls in the blood pool. Sell that shot more. Like, have that kill shot be pretty fucking brutal. Like, make us actually see Blade die. Like, oh, shit. Blade just got fucking shot to death. And then he falls in the blood pool and he's resurrected as a badass murder Jesus, right? It, it You just get the sense that the gunshot, like, knocked him over. It didn't really do any damage. Also... Yeah, the Nomak fight, sure, Nomak is more powerful than Blade. And you're like, oh, no, how is Blade going to get? Oh, he he, did, he does it. Like, the end was never in doubt. But Nomak, when he is dying, he's like, oh, you know, the, the pain is completely gone. And he's, Nomak is actually the one that, like, drives the handleless sword blade further into his own heart. That's more interesting than watching this dumb fight go on, like, a little too long. What if they tried to make us, like, a Tears in the Rain moment, right? Like, I don't think you're going to capture that uh, Roy Batty energy of Rutger Hauer, but, like, if this is a tragic death of someone who was not asked to be created, (laughs) did not ask to be brought into the world as a a vampire predator slash, like, Typhoid Mary of the Reaper virus, I'm not asking this movie to forego a final fight, but just like speed it up a little bit and let's let's try and pair it with a little bit more emotion. Okay, David, please join me in the um, Punch Mountain video store here. Oh, shit. Sorry. Sorry. Let me uh, listen to that music. I think they're having a rave in here. Let me just there. There we go. That's more of our uh, usual store music. There's a lot of blood on the carpet. Yeah, well, you know, oh, David, let me look at the calendar. Oh, tonight was the blood rave. Yeah, that makes sense. Then David. Okay. Okay. That's not actual blood, though, David. Oh, what is it? Uh, do I give it a taste? I think you recognize it. It's your favorite soda. Yay, Big Red. Yeah, that's very, the very same. Okay, David, this is an all-action movie video store, and we have three copies of Blade 2. So what subsections of action would you stock this movie in? 
I'm very happy to put this as the second selection on our Wesley Snipes shelf. Uh, that's going to be the first copy. Uh, second copy is going to go into franchise action. They made three of these Blade movies. They've got a fourth coming up one of these days when they figure out what they're doing in Hollywood. Uh, so yeah, let's let's put that on the Blade shelf. Uh, the third copy, I could make a case either way. I think this is very much a 2000s action movie. There's a lot that feels very similar to Pitch Black now that I'm looking at the list of the mountain. This could also be on the Guillermo del Toro shelf. This could also be creature action if you want to go a little more broad with it. I I'm up in the air about that third copy. David, this is the curator's dilemma. Yeah, there's a lot of obvious choices with where you could stock this movie. The, the GDT shelf, the Marvel comic shelf, the superhero shelf, the vampire shelf. When you look at this movie, and you only, we only got three copies. I'm, I'm sorry, I couldn't splurge for the fourth one. That's fine. I, I tried cooking the books. They just would not cook. <laughs> where would you stock that third copy, David? When, when you look at this, when you really think of Blade Two. What stands out to you? First thought, best thought, I'm, I'm going 2000s action. This this feels at home with other 2000s action movies. I hear you. Yeah, I, I feel that, man. It does feel like very much like a, a post-Matrix action movie, for sure. All right, David, it is, it is almost time to reveal the position of Blade Two on Punch Mountain itself, the definitive ranking of action movies. And just a reminder, the current summit of the mount is Terminator 2 Judgment Day at number one, followed by The Raid 2, the Matrix, Jurassic Park, Hard Boiled, and John Wick. At the bottom of the mound, David, even below the base, it's at the underground blood bank that precedes Punch Mountain as, <laughs> as you drive to the visitor center. It's number 42 currently is Chappie. So, David, before we reveal the mound's rankings, where would you place Blade 2? This is a tough one. This is this is one where I feel compelled to go head to head with the titles on the mountain and go, is this more action-y than this one? But for me, I'm starting at the bottom of this list and going up. But when I do that, it gets really tough because I think where this is gonna end up on the mountain is going to be higher than my enjoyment of it because this is a very action-y movie. You know, Wesley Snipes came to play on this one. Guillermo del Toro is trying to make that Hellboy money. Like, it, there's a lot going for it. It just doesn't land the way it could. And I think that hurts its ranking in the mountain, but it's an action-y movie through and through. What about you, Mac? What are you thinking? Outside the top 10, for sure. But you're right, David. It's a very competent action movie. And I think that places it high on the mountain. But at some point, it kind of runs into like a little bit of a charm factor. Even though Wesley Snipes is cool as hell in this movie, the movie itself is not necessarily like as charming as some of these other action movies. Uh, so yeah, I'm interested to see the mountains ranking for sure. Oh no, David, take shelter, because that is the sound of the rocks falling off the face of the mountain. The golden letters are appearing and revealing the position of Blade 2, which is number 18, which means that 15 is The Rock, 16, another Guillermo del Toro movie, Pacific Rim, 17, The Incredibles, 18, Blade 2, 19, Seven Samurai, 20, The Woman King. Interessante. I personally like this movie more than Pacific Rim, but if the mountains has spoketh, I, I can't argue with it, David, you know, because that, that's a lot of uh, tough company there. I cannot argue with it either. It, you know, this is a mountain of action movies. Blade 2 is an action movie. Blade 2 is, is when we really put the pencil to it, it's going to be one of the better action movies of the 2000s. Personal preferences aside, I think it has a home right there at number 18. Also, show me another list that puts Blade 2 above the Seven Samurai. These are the people <laughs> who got the guts. They don't got the roundies. They don't got the brass oves to rank Blade 2 above. Seven Samurai, but that's what you get at Punch Mountain. I love it. 
Oh no, David, you hear that noise? Oh no, my big red spilled. <laughs> no. Well, that you know what? That could be your no, but that sound specifically, David, is is a horn calling us to action. Because on this podcast, we talk a lot about fictional action heroes, but we also want to talk about real heroes taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. This month, we're spotlighting Food Share. Food Share distributes nearly 19 million pounds of food, providing 16 million meals annually to people in Ventura County, California, through its hunger programs and 190 pantry and program partners. As Ventura County. County's regional food bank, FoodShare provides food for 250,000 hungry friends and neighbors annually. After each episode this month, Punchbound will be making a small donation to FoodShare. Also, for every review we get on Apple Podcasts, we'll add $1 to that donation. And hey, if it's a good review, we'll probably read it on the air. For more information on FoodShare or to donate directly to them, visit foodshare.com. And hey, if you'd rather donate to your own local food bank, please do. That is awesome. Thank you so much. Folks, that'll do it for another episode of Punch Mountain. Don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Punch Mountain or drop us a line at punchmountain at gmail.com. You can also join us on Discord. The link is in our link tree. The link tree is on our Instagram. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for Mac stand-up. Next week from 1995, directed by Peter Hyams and starring Jean-Claude Van Damme, we're watching Sudden Death. And we'll be joined by our first special guest, comedian Carrie Lendo. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye-bye.